Hey everybody, welcome to Growing With Fishes podcast, episode 259. Um, the second start, we had a bit of a brief false start earlier, so I apologize for that, it was kind of fun. I think that's the fu- most comical way that we've screwed it up. In fact, that I think the first 100 episodes, that was like a running joke of like, Marty's would have a thing going, or I would have a thing going, or one of us would forget to mute the thing, so it was kind of funny to, to do it again. Um, when we got the intro song, it would be yeah. so that's what I was, that's a, the first thing I said after you turned off the stream was like, hey, that's a new way we fucked up the intro. We haven't fucked it up that way before. So you know, <laughs> well, uh, this week we have uh, the wonderful Wendy Kornberg is joining us again. Thanks for joining us this week. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. She's going to be talking to us about all kinds of fun stuff this week. We also have Cascadian Grown joining us this week as well on the panel. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's always fun to be here and chat with you. Oh, yeah. And we also have Fumador. How's it going, Fumi? Cheers, folks. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, welcome, uh, Wendy. Cheers. Thank you. And Marty. How's it going, Marty? Hey, how's it going, everybody? And you guys, uh, if you want to check out longer-form education from Marty and I, we do have a long-form class available over apmjclass.com. You can check that out um, if you're interested in, in taking more of a, a long-form class style. Um, thanks a lot for joining us, uh, Wendy. Um, you are uh, quite the educator. You're doing all kinds of different stuff. You're working with the Ganjir program. You got a conference coming out. You're doing all kinds of local education out there in Humboldt. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us in one of the busiest times of the year. Uh, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to, because you're all up to all kinds of stuff every time I'm, I'm checking social media. Yeah, it has been busy. Um, So as Steve said, my name is Wendy Kornberg, and I'm a second generation cannabis cultivator from Southern Humboldt County. Um, We are on the same piece of property we've been on for, I just figured it out. I think this is our 14th season there. So it's been a while. Um, And basically, yeah, just doing, I mean, so, you know, I, I tell a funny story about regenerative cannabis and what regenerative farming is. And really the simple definition is it's putting more back into the land than you take out of it. And I remember the very first Emerald Cup when they had the Regenerative Farm Award and I was in the audience and I looked at my friends and I'm like, what's regenerative farming? And we all went, uh, I have no idea. And I had to Google it and it was like putting more in than you take out. And I went, well, yeah, that's like, farming right and I really had to think about Iowa and Nebraska and Ohio and all these places that do this very industrial style agriculture where they're plowing the fields and they're spraying herbicide and then they're planting their crop and they're spraying more herbicide and then they're spraying pesticides and nutrients because there's nothing left in the soil and um it's interesting because when you come from a background of organic farming and small farming and regenerative farms and Um, regenerative gardens and homesteading and you know kind of all of this very rural style of living it's one thing to see a video of like a a huge corn um, farm in middle America and it is a totally different thing to drive through it so this year I actually drove from here to the east coast and back and I-80 takes you right through the heart of all of this industrial agriculture. And it was 
absolutely mind-blowing to see that in like I think it was March or April when we went to go buy a tractor over on the east coast and uh, it was just like acres and acres as far as the eye could see of just bare soil and then you know later on in the year it was all green corn but there was nothing else there so to me it was just it was wild to actually see it in action this huge amount of you know dead dirt that is just i mean all i could think about was runoff and erosion and how this was something that was so opposite what i do and so opposite from what i know and how nature worked how i understand it and so it was it was it was really interesting to kind of have that experience and come from a place where you know i talk a lot about regenerative agriculture we talk about the buzzwords nowadays of polyculture and permaculture and regenerative farming, but to actually stand in the middle of like this death and destruction that is industrial agriculture, I was just absolutely shell shocked and floored. So, you know, I mean, there's, yeah, Steve's doing screen share. That's a red racer garter snake. We regularly have all kinds of animals visiting the farm. Um, you know, you, you can drive for about two and a half days through middle America through industrial agriculture land and not see anything other than like vultures and maybe some dead rodents on the side of the road. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was really actually, it was, it was sad and it was kind of hard to witness that and drive through it and be like, wow, this is where the majority of people's food comes from. This is the majority of what people, you know, consider to be farming. And I would hate, hate, hate to see cannabis go down that road. I really feel like at this point, we have an opportunity with weed to show people that this can be done to a, a superior quality and you can still utilize regenerative farming even at scale. You can do a lot of this stuff on thousands of acres. It's not that difficult. It's just it takes a change of mentality. It takes the change of your mindset, shifting those paradigms to deciding to do something that's better for everyone instead of something that's just better for the one person with the giant tractor. Absolutely. And you're one of the people that's, um, you know, really leading the way along with Chris Trump and the and proving to people that you can grow this at scale. Do you want to talk about that? Because it's often a criticism I hear about KNF is that, oh, well, it doesn't work at scale. I've, I've seen it work at scale better than it does in small at small scale. Uh, having personally used it now to treat septoria and a bunch of other things at, on acres and acres and acres far beyond what most people are doing. And you have done far beyond what I have done. Um, it, it's almost comical to me to hear that. And I'd love for you to break that down a little bit because you've had, you know, a, a ton of success at scale using KNF. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I get that criticism a lot too. People say, well, it's too hard. And I'm like, actually, no, like manning a small indigenous microorganism pile is way more difficult than manning a big one. Uh, well, it's actually, it's about the same level of difficulty other than once you get larger, you're using a tractor. So it's not so much muscle power and shovels, which is, which is really hard. And then you're also able to do it. You know, you do one large thing, one instead of doing these tiny little things every couple months it's just it is it is easier to do it at scale than it is to do it at small scale it's easier to do this on an acre or two acres or 10 acres or a hundred acres or a thousand acres way easier than to do it on your backyard garden which is you know totally doable also 
but the level of like, if you're going to make oriental herbal nutrient, it's a three month cycle to make that particular input. And the first time I ever did it, I bought, um, I bought half gallon jars and I bought three six packs because one six pack makes one batch. And I went, Oh, I'll just start a new batch every single month. What I didn't realize at the time was that meant I would be stirring those jars every single day for the rest of my life. It would never end because as soon as one cycle got done, I'd start a new one. And I immediately realized, Oh, right. Don't do it like that. What you need to do is do all of them at once. So instead of doing one six half gallon batch, I would do three six half gallon batches. Um, and same thing with, you know, fish amino acid, it has shelf stability forever. So instead of making a five gallon bucket, if you have the wherewithal, the space time and time and fish, you should make a 50 gallon drum of it. And um, indigenous microorganism collections, if you're going to make a small 50 pound pile, if you have the space and time, go ahead and make a really, really big one because you can store it at that large scale and utilize it throughout the year when you need it, rather than having to remake it every single time. There is a, um, a group of hop farmers. I cannot remember their name right now. I know that Chris consults with them and I did a small phone consultation with them as well. And um, when we were talking about it, they were like, well, we don't really know if we can, you know, we don't understand, we're not sure how we can get this onto the hop vines. And I was like, just make IMO four or five and spread it like you would compost during the off season. Like you have a compost spreader, right? Like how do you normally tend for your hop yard? And they're like, oh yeah, we'll leave these machines and that machine. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, just do that. And just put it on once in your off season, you'll be doing great. And I believe Chris just posted um, about them and their whole entire soil bed is turning into this mycelium mat that is just absolutely alive with fungal fruiting bodies and mycelium. And it's just, it's incredible to see. And I believe they're, they're a fairly small hop farm. I think they're 25 acres of active hop vines right now. Um, but you know, to see those things where it's like, oh, you can't do this at that scale. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, you can. Sure. You can do this at any scale. You just have to want to do it that way. I think this is the video that you're referring to here. Yes, that is the one. Yeah. I saw that today. That was pretty wild. It just goes to show how quickly you can repair soils too. People think it can take, you know, five years or more. You can do it a lot quicker than people realize, at least enough to get your crop going again. You know, yep. it might not be 100%, but it's certainly going to be repaired to the point where you can rely on it, you know, uh, to, to help produce your crops and then reduce pests. That's the biggest thing. You know, when you don't have things like this, that's when you will see things like septoria and a lot of the other problems that people have. It's, it's when you have dead soil. In fact, that's the number one time I, I see septoria having worked a ton in Oklahoma uh, is, is when you have a field that was corn, wheat, soybeans, something else where they're used to doing these sterile fields. Um, those are the ones that are having a lot of the more of the disease outbreaks and the ones that have a lot more microbial activity in the root system because those plants immune systems are not being stimulated. Exactly. And that's, that's the great point, Steve, is that, you know, we do, especially with cannabis, for some reason, everybody got on this bizarre kick to put a concrete pad down or, you know, just raise everything down to bare soil and then put smart pots on full of potting soil. And it's just, I don't know where that came from other than the idea from, you know, indoor, which you had to do things on a more sneaky side back in the day, you couldn't get caught. 
So the idea of putting a plant in a pot became the norm. And then when people translated that to outside, they just stuck with that ideology, but it was a much bigger pot. Um, but that potting soil doesn't have a lot of life in it, if any. And in order to get a living, a living soil food web going, you need to have a certain amount of volume. It's kind of up in the air as to what that volume exactly is, but it's not small. And the reality is if you put it in ground, you can condition your soil really quickly. And then you have so much there that's beneficial. You're literally out competing the pathogens. But if you put a small mix of bacteria on a sterile medium, generally the pathogens are the ones that are going to breed the fastest. They're coming, they're taking over way quicker than anything that's beneficial is in there. And you do, you get septoria, you get powdery mildew, you get yeast, mold. Um, fusarium is one that we see all the time in cannabis. I uh, used to just be kind of in small indoors and now it seems like it's in, or sorry, it used to only be seen in full term outdoor. We actually were speaking with Joanna Berg on our radio show, who's from Dirty Business. And she said that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, they would see fusarium death in a large outdoor plant. And we had one that actually died from fusarium. Uh, this would have been about six or seven, I don't know, eight years ago. And, you know, it was about a 10 foot tall plant and it was, you know, good six to eight feet wide. And it was, I'd never seen fusarium before. And I just watched one branch die after the other, after the other. And we finally, you know, sent the soil in before this was before I had my microscope and they were like, oh yeah, that was fusarium. And I was like, wow, okay, that's crazy. I didn't, what do I do now? Because everything online said you have to dig your soil up and throw it away. And I'm like, it's a hole in the ground. I can't dig it up and throw it away. So I kind of did a little bit of a deep dive and discovered that, you know, what I could probably do was compost the soil in place. So we got a ton of blood meal. We covered it with black plastic. We heated it up. We basically cooked the shit out of it. And then we re-inoculated with compost. And then we planted the next season and we did a compost extract. And I just took a bag of, of really high quality compost and I mushed it in water for about 15 minutes. This was Dr. Elaine Ingham's, one of her techniques. And, um, and then you just use that to water it on. And we did that about every month or so and no problems that, that plant did. It, it wasn't as good as the rest of the field, but it still did fine. We got a harvest out of it. And then the year after that, everything was just totally snuffed. You could, I couldn't even remember which hole it was. So being able to reintroduce and re-inoculate your beneficials is really, really important. And if they're not there at all, you're just cruising for a bruising. You're just, it's going to be trouble because you don't have a healthy plant. A plant sitting in isolation is never going to be happy. It's, I mean, I guess that's not really true. There are some plants that do okay in that there are some house plants that can manage just fine. But, um, you know, I link it a lot to kind of like human nature and COVID, right? COVID hit, everybody got super isolated. People were in their apartments by themselves. They weren't going out. They weren't socializing. They were taken to the internet to try and get their social stimulation, which is fraught with all kinds of craziness and people's opinions and bullying and God knows what. And people didn't do well. People got sick. You know, suicide went up, depression went up, obesity is up, you know, just everything that's unhealthy went up. And 
while we are not plants, we still, it's, it's very similar. Like you isolate like that. That's not how nature works. We're not, we're not really healthy in those conditions. So, um, I mean, not to totally go off on a rant about the weird smart pot evolution that happened, but like, it's time for that to die. Like that evolution, we need to devolve it back to, you know, growing with nature, not growing outside of nature. I mean, I have to think that it, it's got to be based in just being able to still have a portable plant when you've got to, you know, like, I mean, allegedly, as somebody, you know, you allegedly grew plants <laughs> when you weren't supposed to, uh, you know, if you knew somebody was going to show up or they had to disappear quickly, I mean, you, you have to tear them out of the ground, which is never good for a plant. And if it's in the pot, you can throw it in the U-Haul and drive it to somewhere else. Um, so I do think that there's a lot that prohibition has to do with that, but just in, in general, the idea that what we consider now is like natural farming is really just been farming up until like two generations ago, right? Like, that, you know, it's really uh, interesting to sort of like um, just sort of see the shift of like, like you're talking about buying soil, putting it in pots and even like replacing it. I'm sure because they start seeing drop off in soil because they didn't see, didn't know how to maintain it. So they would start replacing their soil with new new potting soil and new stuff after you know one or two runs, <clears throat> and so it just seems like it just you know it's always seemed like crazy wasteful to me. So um, I'm this idea that we have to like completely uh, you know create a, a vacuum in all of our grows and expect like uh, it to turn out well. I think is one of the things that you know generations down the road are going to look back on us and just shake their head like you know <laughs> what were you thinking not only that but but cloth pots are a great vector for root aphids because you have all those root tips sticking out this is literally a photograph because there's a lot of marsh aphids water lily aphids and other similar type things to root aphids um, this is the outside of a smart pot with all, a whole colony of aphids feeding on all those root tips sticking through the bag. So they can basically be wonderful feeding stations to any flying root aphid that comes along if on a large scale outdoor grow. And then once they get established on one plant, they rip through the facility. So I, I've documented that at least four times now in, in Oklahoma. That's so crazy. I, I that makes, <laughs> yeah, that's wild and totally makes sense. I mean, I've, I had root aphids once years ago and uh, they, I, there was a natural pathogenic fungi that came in and eradicated them within eight days. I uh, got sent to BioWorks and Cornell University and they have, um, they got it down to the species, I think, but they haven't been able to figure out what it is past that. So it's, uh, it's crazy again, like for me, those root aphids that I had were in my little bumper room and they spread from pot to pot to pot to pot to pot through the water. As you watered, one would wash off and wash over and attach to the next pot and go up and infest that one. But because part of my potting soil was my native soil and indigenous microorganism collections. Oh yeah. See, mine didn't look anything like that. <laughs> um, but because of that, there was some natural fungus in my soil that that you know killed them really really fast they didn't come back i haven't had trouble with them since and it's been something that i just kind of went well my nature took care of it now had i been only in sterile potting soil and put those into you know larger systems without paying attention yeah i would have had something that looks like that which is horrifying um 
so my my nature took care of my problem which was wonderful but i do know that you know a lot of people are like well we keep them in pots so we can isolate them i'm like yeah but if you don't have a disease you don't need to isolate them and if you don't isolate them there's less chance of getting the disease in the first place so maybe you're working against yourself when you're doing that and it's and it's not to say that like i don't understand you know, the idea of prohibition and what it drove us to, because like I said, I'm a second generation cultivator. I was doing this way before we had medical anything. And, um, but we just did it differently. We did it more like the kids in Kentucky and Tennessee, where they're doing gorilla grows out back, you know, way up in the farmlands and out in the middle of boonies where you just put them in the ground and, you know, tended to it and hoped to make it to the end of season rather than the idea of, putting it in a pot that you're going to try and put it in a U-Haul and move it to a safer location. It's just like, well, you know, you, you threw your dice and hoped for a good hand. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, gorilla growing, you know, creeks in Northern California is definitely something that I'm familiar with. Of course, it was all my friends. They did it all. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, sure. But yeah, so, you know, my family, you know, we, my mom's from Redway and Garberville, and my dad's from uh, Happy Camp. So between the two, definitely ran into a few gorilla grows in my time. I think some of that smart pot outdoor phenomenon comes from a, a, a bit of a disconnect. Um, in the, the cannabis community, I, I I'm speaking very generally, but I think there's a lot of people that know how to work with the potting mix, but don't know how to work with native soils. And there's a certain perfectionism and a bar that was set before, you know, when we lived in indoor environments, prohibition land, and then moving outdoors, and they want to carry over that same sort of perfectionism and that same repeatability and that same comfort zone. And I'm not sure everybody or a majority of the people in the cannabis community actually know how to tweak a native soil to be more like what they would expect from their potting mix. And I think they think it's easier. Um, in the long run, it's easier to tend your native soils and, and kind of figure out how to alter those. But I think there's a certain, a certain level of like, repeatability it's on it's on the human psyche side more than the nature side the, the issue because working with your native soils is a lot easier regardless of what your soil looks like it's easier to to alter your native soil than it is to bring in yards and yards and yards of this dead potting mix and try to bring it to life with a defibrillator um when it, you can buy it at the store right like yeah, it's you can pick up the phone and you can say hey i need this delivered in a dump truck and you can get it. One you can buy at the store, and the other one like you actually have to do yourself. And I think that's where. Well, then you you have to know more to be able to alter your native soils. You have to actually farm. You can't just grow a plant for profit. You have to actually like you can't just hustle your way out of a native soil if it's if there's something you need to alter. You have to actually farm. Like there's a diff. It's a different skill set. So I, I I'm not sure that everybody in the cannabis community was actually equipped with the skill set so they fell back on what they thought was more comfortable yeah I, I agree i think a lot of people are used to what they do inside and they just try to take it outside yeah but i, I do have a input or, or a reason i I've, I've only got one plant outside but i did use a smart pot but i use it for root 
um, to keep my roots a little bit safer, um, to keep the fucking moles and to keep the fucking, you know, because I do have a very natural <laughs> yard that I have it. So I have lots of animals, but um, I only put it in like about a 10 gallon. I think it was out there and it was planted in a seed. And it was, uh, I did use a, a, a pre-mixed bag because it was easy of uh, M3, which is a, the same media I grow with indoor. But I took native soil and mixed it 50-50 to try to bring in that biology of the native. Um, and I only watered the thing, well, now four times in, in the entire life of it, other than I gave it a good watering when I planted it as a seed. And then uh, I saw it droop, one, you know, three other times I saw it start to droop a little bit. So I gave it a good watering and that's it. I, this whole fucking season hadn't even had to water the plant. And it, well, it's raining like crazy, you know, it's been raining so much this season, but that helped me out. But uh, yeah, I like the, the, I like the fabric pot just for the, gives me root protection because a couple of seasons ago, I lost half a plant to just a mole wanting to roll through there one time and, 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 you know, munch on the roots and do a lot of damage to, it got to like the main tap root and really, really messed that plant up quick. So I don't know. I, for me, I feel like ever since I started doing that, it's been the best results I've ever done. And that's including straight in the ground. So it's just my system that I'll probably do till the day I die. <laughs> just because it works for me. But I could never do that at scale. I could never do that with even 72 plants. I wouldn't even want to begin to try. That, that's just dumb. And, and no, but one, two plants in my backyard. Yeah, I'll do that every time. The, uh, well, what's, what's, I was going to say what's wild about that. Um, well, first of all, you mix native soil in, so you're kind of mitigating your potting soil issues just by doing that alone. But we had at one point um, 200, uh, 200, no, sorry, 100, 200 gallon smart pots laid out on our field. Um, I'd stepped away from the farm for a while to raise my kids and the people that we had kind of sharecropping and helping us out, put out all these smart pots. And I got back and I was like, this is the most insane thing I've ever seen. And as we started upending those smart pots, the amount of voles that had created their home underneath was mind blowing. There were hundreds of rodents under those pots. It was astronomical. And the fact that they were coming out and they were climbing up the edge of the pot and damaging the plants, and the guys that were out there couldn't figure wow. out what was on. And I was like, dude, this is like, you know, the second I came out, I'm like, yeah, there, you can see their trails going to underneath the smart pots. And we started upending them. And I was like, this is hugely problematic. So you can actually cause more problems than you're mitigating. Yeah. And again, well, I don't know. I didn't explain exactly my system either. I don't put my smart pots on the soil surface. I actually sink them down around halfway so that it creates almost like a raised bed so that helps me too with if it got like this year it helped me because i had really rainy season so mm -hmm. it created you know a little bit higher root zone so it wasn't like sitting in deep water a lot and i have really really clay like really clay like soil which is great for minerals right so i mean i've got enough minerals to grow anything i don't have to i don't fertilize anything i don't have to i just got to get the biology there to do my work so that yeah. i'm super lucky in but that's another reason why I like that little bit of a, you know, 10 gallons worth of um, basically, we won't even call it topsoil, 10 gallons worth of compost I'm basically growing in just to give it that space for biology, because I really do have a high clay like soil. Um, 
but I bury mine. So they're buried. They're not, they're not just sitting in the soil like that. Eat too. Yeah. Ours and and the roots good. go right through them and they're only good for one year. I mean, because the roots go right through them and uh, it gets right into the native biology. It gets right into the underground water source or whatever it does. So they don't have to water it. That's, that's what I was going to ask you. Um, I was going to ask you about whether the roots are going through because the few that we had that got buried in, uh, the roots popped out and it was like, okay, well, now that thing is worthless. We've also had the moles don't seem to do much. Like I've, I've got pictures of mole holes that are literally on top of the plant. They're right there and the plant is doing fine. I know I've also had them damage roots. We've had gophers though, that we watched the plant like get sucked down into the ground in front of our eyes, which was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Um, and then we've had gophers that chewed holes through the smart pots to get in. So oh a lot of it depends on what rodent you're having trouble with. And then just for us, we started thinking out, well, what I have is I have Alice, who's my Boston Terrier, and she loves hunting anything that squeaks. So I don't really have a trouble with the animals anymore because I got an animal to control the animals. Uh, but there's also things Perfect. like gopher purge that you can plant, which is a plant that repulses, repels gophers. Um, but voles for us were, were the main problem, which is it's a common field mouse. And they would actually sneak up they bury they'll dig six inches into the ground and they'll run on the top so you can't like you know do any normal things like putting a, a trap at the hole like you would a gopher because they're just in and out all over the place and they would come up to the plants and they would chew a ring around the cambium layer and then your whole plant would just die because it couldn't move nutrients and water up it anymore so for us those ones were really problematic and um and alice takes care of them now <laughs> But yeah, you I have to, I know mine are moles. I've seen them with my own eyes. I, I don't know. I, I must have a, you know, a pretty healthy grub population that they're running after. But uh, for or, me, I don't, I don't care. I, I assume that that's aeration. You know what I mean? I, I try to put a positive spin on everything. So I, I try not to be too upset and I'm like, well, they're aerating it for me. So I don't have to broad fork it or something stupid. So, and yeah. plus I have, like I said, I have high clay, so, you know, they're helping me in the long run. So absolutely whatever i'm just trying to exist with them <laughs> um master cho who does who's the kind of the originator of pre and natural farming part of his recipes are mole dirt like he's like you go find those mole holes and like take that soil because it's deeper soil they're bringing it up from underneath and they're giving you a whole different mineral layer than what you get when you're broad forking or just utilizing other soil so um oh, if you that's amazing have, thank you for sharing that that, that blew yeah. my mind right there that's not i didn't even think of that but it's so simple it makes easy sense yep and it's nice soft dirt they usually don't have any rocks in it so so save those mole hills and uh, incorporate that into your soil and or into your potting soil your beds your bags whatever it is it's it's great soil awesome i'm going to do that i'll throw my raised beds just for my veggies yep <laughs> I was going to say you're also uh, putting on a conference coming up. Do you want to tell us about that? Mm -hmm. I'll throw it up here on yeah. the screen. We are doing a conference uh, February 11th, 12th, and 13th in Massachusetts. I like you have that up there. I was like, what are our dates? <laughs> and uh, basically, uh, came about this with um, our organic cultivators group, which is a Facebook group. And we have about 13,000 people in there. Um, 
we got really big at a certain point and we started getting pretty vicious about kicking people out because we noticed that the quality of the advice had dropped considerably and it was there was just a lot of really bad advice that was going around and so um there's a small group of us moderators that are extremely active so um we kind of have been kicking around the idea of a conference for a while and suzanne wainwright is one of our moderators in that group and she's been hounding me to put on a conference for years now and so finally with uh, with my my fiance james Buer, he was like we should just do the conference and suzanne's like yeah do it and we're like okay fine and i said I'll do it, but I want it to be fun. I want this to be something different. I don't want this to be sitting in a seat and just listening and nodding and taking notes because there's a huge value to that, but there's a lot of conferences that already do that. And so we kind of have been sitting around and kicking it with um, our friends and neighbors and things and trying to figure out what we can do that's a little bit different. So it's gonna kind of be a four part day. So starting off the morning is a really casual thing where we're going to have different speakers and different influencers and different people that have really fun stories. And we're just going to sit around a casual chat with them. Agenda, no, you know, nothing like that. As they're coming in to sit down, can ask questions and they can be engaged with the people that are you know, talking. And if there's nothing to talk about, then we'll just dialogue and hang out and tell war stories. And from there, it moves into one of our main keynote speakers. And so Chris Trump is going to be speaking. And we've asked him, instead of doing like a how-to about KNF, we really want him to focus on like the philosophy. Like why KNF? What does it mean? Where does it come from? What are the parts that are inspiring? Why do we even want to take that track instead of doing something that's a lot easier, like Shadam or just simply organic growing, you know? Like why not just use bottled nectar of the gods? Why go through all this trouble? Um, we're going to have uh, Dan Kittrich. He gets, he, we're giving him like the entire second day. If you guys don't know who he is, uh, you should check it out. He is really an amazing guy. He has been, his, his family founded the organic movement in uh, the East, on the East Coast about 35 years ago. So they've been running a small farm and he basically kind of took a look at their farm and said, we're running this organic farm and it's costing us more than if we were conventionally farming it. And this is upside down and backwards and this shouldn't be that hard. And he basically kind of tore things apart and, you know, reverse engineered them back using nature. And he does things that like people are like, oh my God, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Like, he's like, why pull out your old dead tomatoes? Why not just leave them there? They'll help support the new ones next time. Um, he has uh, this, he talks about late blight in tomatoes as a type of septoria, I believe, or it's a septoria is a type of blight at least. And um, he's like, I'm stoked when I see it because I just sit there and, you know, I let nature take care of it and I don't overdo it. And when that plant dies, because that was a weak genetic, I just don't use that. You know, I don't collect seeds from that one. I collect it from the ones that were next door that didn't get it, that weren't diseased. So um, it's a, it's a really neat way, a new neat track and take on how to farm that is very opposite from what we see, right? Like example, we had thrips this year and people would come out and be, they'd be like, oh my gosh, you have thrips, what are you gonna do? And I said, I don't know, I'm gonna continue to watch it. I've been watching them for a while. They're not that bad. They're, uh, they're actually like really bad on my nasturtiums, but I don't really care about my nasturtiums that much. They're leaving my weed alone for the most part. There's a little bit of it on there, but you know, 
if it gets really bad, I have some natural wetting agents and natural pesticides I can use. But as long as it doesn't get really bad, I don't care. And uh, a lot of that came from listening to Dan and just being like, he's got a really good idea of just, you know, see if nature will take care of itself. Don't don't fiddle faddle it too much. Um, we're also having Suzanne Wainwright come in. She's going to be talking about biocontrol and about all the, um, you know, different things we can do instead of using pesticides. Uh, and we have Kobe Guy, who's a friend of mine. He's a small farmer in Sacramento and he grows like $40 per pound peppers. He is like this master pepper farmer. So he's going to be talking to us. He is also using Korean natural farming to keep his costs down. And especially as we see the cost of food increasing, like people being able to be self-sustaining and sustain their local community with lower cost food. I think that's going to be something that's going to be more and more important as we go through and as we go down the road. Um, and then our other speaker is um, Benjamin. Ben is going to talk, and I'm not sure what he's talking on yet. He's got a plethora of things he could talk about. Um, he is an amazing farmer. He's also a soil smith with Korean natural farming, studied under Chris Trump. He does consulting. He's consulted like all over the world. He was just in Alaska, like doing consulting and, and, you know, checking out all of the amazing things in Alaska. I was, I'm very jealous. I'm like, Oh, I want to go to Alaska one of these days. Um, and he is pretty well known for doing, um, greenhouse consulting and greenhouse construction, you know, figuring out how to do it appropriately and how to do it in a way that we can utilize more natural systems like free and natural farming or organic farming in order to get those same repeatable results, right? The reason why people want the potting soil and why they change it every time so that they can have a repeatable result, but doing it in a more sustainable manner, which again, also as things shift and change and as food becomes more costly and as cannabis becomes more costly and as we have more and more mid-grade, low nutritional content, everything, figuring out how to make the things that are actually good for us more accessible is going to become, I think, a real key in health and uh, human health and, and wellness. So anyway, yeah, so long story about all of our speakers and how fun it's going to be. And then in the evening, we're doing a little like fireside chat thing, which will be much like the coffee side chat in the morning um, and getting different people in to talk and have it be a very um, question and answer engaging with the audience type of situation. So um, it's going to be fun. We're actually, oh, and um, James just texted me and said that there is 10% off till the end of the month. So if you guys go, I think we're still have early bird tickets available as well, but those will sell out and uh, supernatural all in capital letters. One word will get you an additional 10% off till the end of the month. Oh, and okay. And it's kind of play on words, super natural because, you know, we're not just going organic. We're not just going sustainable. This is like super extra, really, really natural, crunchy conference. Um, and I really wanted to keep it everything super secret and not tell anybody who our speakers were or what we were speaking about or anything else. And I, I kind of got vetoed rightfully so because you know who would want to come to something that's a supernatural conference and you have three days that is potions and alchemy and uh ghosts and goblins and the divination like you know it's just it, i guess it was like we have to tell people a little bit more about what we're doing rather than just leaving it at that so i don't know maybe you'll just attract attract a different audience you know right <laughs> we have a lot of people 
with, you know, <laughs> candles and, and uh, all kinds of wonderful herbs and things. And then they'd be like, wait, what are we here for? <laughs> yeah, I have maybe a semi-controversial question or I don't know, just a comment, I guess. Yeah. So I have a very outsider looking in knowledge on KNF. I, I know, of, I know, I know the gist of it, but I, I don't, I haven't practiced it myself. Um, I like it. I have nothing against it. The only um, negative, I don't know if it's a negative, but the only thing that irritates me is the whole world just calls it natural farming. Why don't we just call it natural farming? And on that same thought process, why I think that's important is that when we hold on to KNF, people take it literal, like a literal interpretation of that and think they have to use like, for example, rice, mm -hmm. when maybe rice isn't the natural thing, you know, isn't the best choice in, in whatever situation. So, and I'm not being a critic. I, I'm just saying, I wish we would push more, just say natural farming. So we could get that idea of use what's around you, use that for the farming and not so much, you know, tie it to a location because then you're kind of losing the point, the whole kind of, the whole kind of background gist of this whole thing is use what's around you, you know, because now you're not, you know, burning carbon just to get it to you kind of a situation. Yeah. So that's my only real, and I'm obviously being a negative. It's a very, it's a nitpick, but I would, it's just kind of a no, philosophy it's, thing. It's, it's valid. And, and it's something that we've kicked around because Chris Trump says that everyone else in the world just says natural farming. But then when I was talking with Ray Yoon, who is, from Korea, he said, no, it is Korean natural farming because natural farming encompasses all kinds of different regiments and methodologies. So the rest of the world, so, so it's, it's debatable at this point. I don't know what the rest of the world considers it. It is a part, it is a natural farming system, but it was based and formulated by a gentleman in Korea. It should be chose natural farming, which would make way more sense to me because now yeah, you're honoring the man who came up with it. I really like um, that. Yeah, and that's that's what I would personally push for because it is a system. And the more that I do it, the more that I realize it's not really something meant to be piecemealed out, although it, it can be. But if you're not like, there, it, it's like Chinese medicine. Right. So like if you take certain Chinese herbs, they work in synergy with other Chinese herbs and it's meant to be kind of systematic. It's not like you just willy nilly take. Um, I don't know. I can't think of any of them right now, of course. Uh, but, you know, you don't just take one Chinese herb and another one without really understanding how they work together. And they're so so KNF or Cho C CNF. C well, and it is Cho's Global Natural Farming is originally, you know, the foundation. but. Um, it is definitely, you know, systematic and it, it kind of flows together well. And when you start tearing it apart and using just one little piece, it, it kind of loses some of what makes it work. Man, that's a very important point too. And that kind of translates to a lot of different farming techniques. And I, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who like to mix and, and, you know, I'll shout out Singanic that I hear all the time. It's like, they think they're taking like two two parts out of two different worlds and somehow making a super potion but and they don't understand that you know if you do just one or the other you'd get better results and pick, pick one when you mix them both you get worse results than one or the other and so when you leave parts out or you take things out a lot of people like to do that but it's like 
man, even nutrient lines, you know, people can't even keep to one single nutrient <laughs> line and, you know, they were designed to fit together for a reason. I am guilty of all of that. I'm guilty of all of that. I mean, back when I was growing, it was like, I'm going to use age old organics for this, but then I'll use like the micronutrient from someone else. And oh yeah. For that. And I'll just, it'll be fine. You know? And then when you started being like, Oh, okay, well maybe if I'm going to use Fox farm, I should use the entire Fox farm line. And, um, yeah, it's I, I and then even when I started doing Korean natural farming, I was like, well, if this works, I'm going to add fulvic acid because that's going to be better. And I did a side by side and I I germinated out a whole bunch of cannabis seeds and I did a plain water soak, which was my control. I did a SES, which is the maintenance solution, a seed soak solution with, that Korean natural farming uses. Um, and I did, you know, the same amount of seeds with that. And then I did one that had that plus fulvic acid. And I also did it with loofah gourd seeds. And I was blown away. Like the ones that I added fulvic acid to, again, combining two totally different methodologies and two both natural for me, but they're not meant to go together. And the germination rate suffered it was a hundred percent on the loofah seeds that were just water and a hundred percent on the ones that were SES and 60% when I added fulvic acid to it. I was like, Oh dang, that sucks. Okay. And then wow. the cannabis seeds eventually got percent with the SES and fulvic acid, but it took like an extra week or two weeks for them to germinate. And then three months later, the seedlings that had SES and fulvic acid were not moving nutrients properly. They had been treated exactly the same, same soil, same every same amount of water, nothing different other than the initial seed soak. And the cannabis was light yellow. It was not moving nitrogen properly. It wasn't, it was weird to see it side by side, same height, more or less, but just not healthy plants. Internode lengths were longer. They were stretching. Um, Crazy. Follow through the entire life of the plant, entire life until the plant was done. They did not produce as well. They did not, um, they weren't as vigorous. They were weaker. They got sick. I got powdery mildew. The ones that were just soaked in seed soak did amazing. And the ones that were soaked in just plain water did pretty damn well also. So I was like, whoa. And the same thing with the gourds, the loofah gourds, by the end of when I stopped tracking, because I didn't plant them in time. So they, they don't transplant well. I didn't know. I was like, ah, whoops. Um, but by the time they were done, the ones that were in plain water were on average, I think an inch or two inches shorter than the ones that were SES. And the ones that had SES and fulvic acid were like four to six inches on average shorter than plain water. I was just like, oh, oh that's astounding with all the fulvic acid pushers out there, man. That's astounding. Right? And you would think, I mean, I'd done just a plain fulvic acid and had really good results. But again, this is one of those, like, sometimes systems aren't meant to be tinkered with. And unless you do a side-by-side -side and do a, like, I never would have known that if I hadn't had that control group. I would have I was just, just going to say, and that's great that you did the water only because the control, because that's usually the biggest, the number one thing left out in everybody's side-by-side. -side. It's usually literally a side-by-side, -side, just two things with no control. Yeah, so it's really good that you did that and we got that information. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah.
it's, it's, it's cool. It's, I love doing stuff like that and doing it properly where you're like, okay, well, where's the one that you just had water and people are like, oh no, I'm like, well, you know, you don't know what it would have done on its own. Then maybe you didn't need to do anything. I mean, maybe that was the best track. <laughs> it's funny because as I call myself the lazy gardener, because that's me. Like when you're describing the tomatoes, I always leave a couple on each, each vine and just let them. And then I see what pops up. I plant, you know, I might plant a few, I deliberately plant a few things to make sure I get what I need, but I'm just one guy sitting at home. I don't need a lot, but I get a bountiful harvest every year. There's all the volunteer tomatoes that come up and just all these vegetables in my, in my gardens that I do very little to, except for throw leaves on at the end of the year and just let it, yep. and that's it. So yeah, I just love I that. Throw, stuff. I do say my throw IMO and rabbit manure. I just go toss it out there. And for me, I'm, I'm not, I don't call it a lazy gardener. I, I say that we are, um, we, we create thriving ecosystems that are self-propagating, <laughs> i.e. I grow tomato sprawl. People are like, don't you tie your tomatoes up? I'm like, no, I mean, I know I'm supposed to, but like, I just, I don't know. I'm also one person and I like planting things. And then once they start growing, I like watching them grow. And then when it comes time to like manage them, Oftentimes I'm like, oh, well, now you're on your own. Either figure exactly. it out or uh, I don't know. That's <laughs> me. That's me to a T. It's like, you know, you're on your own, man. I'm we not a like place that. to grow. That's it. <laughs> so if you plant them against the fence, they'll just run up against the fence and then you can walk around the other side and pick them. That's how we finally, like, that's our, our zero maintenance uh, tomato structure. Uh, like yeah. The, the deer appreciate that where I live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'll get some of them, but not all of them, you know. So they got to eat too. No, the deer killed my entire garden this year. Like oh, they just slaughtered it. I was like, oh, all right, well, yeah, fix the fences next year. <laughs> That's rough. Yeah, but okay. it's going to taste delicious later on when we kill it. <laughs> I love jerky. Right? Is there, uh, is there anything new or interesting or maybe, um, uh, out of the mainstream with the KNF stuff that you've been working on as far as trying different things or, or things that you're seeing how people have success with? Yeah, well, the, the, what I think you coined it, Steve, the IPMO, right? The integrated pest microorganisms. <laughs> yeah, actually, I came from Chris originally. He was the one who, who okay. but, uh, but yeah, I, I, that stuff kicks butt, especially against grasshoppers. It's really one of the best things you can use. Yeah, um, I've been playing with it a little bit. I haven't really done it on my farm because I don't have the bugs to make it originally. Uh, but it's basically the idea of using the carcasses of your pest to inoculate, uh, to, to encourage the inoculation of fungi that will actually like attack that pest. So it's kind of like Bavaria bassiana is a, is a fun fungus that's used against root aphids and other um, soft-bodied and I believe hard-bodied insects as well, although I'm not positive about that. Again, I don't really use these products. So when it comes to really knowing what they're effective against, I, I, I'm a little, a little weak on that. Um, but the grow that I was consulting with in Colorado had a roly poly bug outbreak and it was really bad. And I've dealt with it as well, where they're actually like climbing up the stalks of the cannabis and chewing at the leaves. And they'll literally like shave the buds for you, 
which would be great because they'd be wet trimming it, except for they're pooping all over it at the same time. And it's totally disgusting. They're horrid little beasties. And when I had this outbreak, it was, oh gosh, probably six, seven years ago now. I don't remember. Everything I could find online was like, oh, this isn't a big deal. They're not a bad garden pest. They just eat the you know, dead material that's on the ground. And I'm like, this is not what I'm experiencing. Like I'm experiencing something vastly different. Yeah. I've been there. So frustrating Ah. when you look online for stuff, man. Yeah. Don't even worry about it. You're like, what do you mean? Don't worry about it. They've eaten half of my stock. They're about to fall my fucking plant. Like (laughs) I'm a little worried. Okay. Yeah. I've had them eat whole flats of seedlings. (laughs) I've I've popped seeds. They've got about that tall. I've come and let's go check the babies. You go in there and there's nothing left. There's little stubs. You're like something, something's not right here. No slug trails, no, no snail trails. It's just like, and then you find those, they actually, we had drip tape and we finally figured out they were chewing holes in the drip tape. Oh my God. This is a problem. They would get my eternal hate. I would hate them forever. I love the idea. I love, I love just using their bodies because you're just, you, you're using them as food. You're putting them out in nature and say, come eat this. And then whatever shows up has got to be making chitinase to at least break down their bodies. And then uh, whatever that is, you're just brewing it in your IMO and spraying it on them like acid. I love it. Exactly. That's, that is the theory behind it. And it seems to be working pretty well. Um, the only downside to this is collecting those dead bodies. First of all, the, the best way to do this, if you guys, if anybody out there is listening and you have a roly poly slash wood louse slash, they have a million different names, but you know, they're the little like crab. Glad you clarified because this is not a murder channel. <laughs> isopods don't they call them isopods? isopods do people know that name i love isopods but i just people... love the name I just, yeah i love that name it just sounds cool yeah. makes me sound okay. smart makes you sound smart well when you have an isopod infestation that is at the level <laughs> four <laughs> um and you're freaking out because your plants are rolling and just bugs oh that would uh, just makes my skin crawl the, the, the poop on them that was where i was just like okay i'm over it like the pill bug that's the other bug i was like pill bug sow bug yeah um those guys the best way to collect them is if you lay masking tape sticky side up along the ground or your pot or your raised bed whatever it might be and they'll literally crawl across it and just get stuck and it's a fabulous way to actually also mitigate the problem somewhat. Uh, but there's usually they're laying eggs and they're just by the time they get problematic, it's population explosion and it becomes very, very, very difficult to control them. So if you collect their bodies, the only downside to that is when you're trying to scrape them off the masking tape, it is the most disgusting smelling thing you have ever experienced. It is like it is like the ocean after all the crabs and lobsters have washed up and been dead for like four days. And it's just this putrid, dead seafood. Oh, it is gross. It's so gross. So gross. So how's that smell when you're brewing that up? <laughs> oh, my God. Once you brew it, it's not super bad. Once you've created the IMO out of it, it's kind of fine. But like okay. as you're collecting them it's like you keep that bucket as far away from me as you can it's foul 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 they, they are like a land lobster too they they're related to the lobsters and the crabs and of the ocean they're in the crustacean family right i believe yeah. yeah yep and they smell like it like go collect their dead bodies and and you'll be like oh yeah definitely seafood 
you know, this is maybe a uh, way out there, but I was just thinking, I don't know why I got on this thought, but I was thinking about, uh, I don't know, invasive species on the ocean, like uh, in tide pools and stuff. So like uh, uh, purple urchins and stuff. Could you grind those up and ferment those and use those potentially? Or would there be too much, I don't know, salt or some kind of micronutrient or something in them? No, you could definitely, I mean, I don't know if it would have the same effect, um, but I know that there's um, a lady that I met in South Korea who lives in the Philippines. Her name is Anne. And she actually made, because when we went to South Korea, we went on this whole journey that we were supposed to learn about GCM, gelatinase chitinase microorganism, uh, which turns out to just be a bacillus species. It's more like, oh, okay. Um, but when we were down there, we were like, it really became obvious that what was, what was really happening was um, the gentleman who came up with this thing, Dr. Kim, wanted us to pressure the USDA and um, the, you know, the, the um, agricultural departments in the United States to allow him to import it to us all the time. And I was you're talking to a bunch of like natural farmers who are DIY kids. Like we don't want to have to buy this from you all the time. We want to learn how to make it ourselves. So Anne went back to the Philippines armed with the information that we had, which was we kind of understood what it was and, you know, how it was supposed to affect things. And she collected a ton of crab shells and she baked them and she ground it and she kind of did this brew with it. And she came up with something pretty damn close to the GCM. And um, it, it turned out to be a really effective pesticide, if, if I recall correctly. It was a while ago now when I was following her with this work. But she did pretty much similar to what you're saying. Um, again, I don't know that sea urchins, I mean, their shells would probably work. You might want to get the meat out of it. Um, and then it would still be a process of grinding it and allowing something to propagate onto it and trying to figure out what species eats the chitin. It's, it's not quite as simple as, you know, grind a starfish out and, and shove or not starfish, an urchin up and, you know, shove it on your soil and see what happens. But maybe it had it coming. Maybe it was a bad starfish. Bad starfish. Well, and there are bad starfish. Crown of thorns. I lived in Hawaii. Those things were horrid. (laughs) I can tell you just from a a commercial standpoint, what we'd be worried about there would be heavy metals. Anything out of the water, out of the ocean is like instantly, if we hear it comes from the ocean, it's like heavy metal test. What's your heavy metal test? (laughs) Because you'll fail fast on some of that stuff. But on something that's super fast growing, like those urchins, I wouldn't, th- you're, you'd still have to test it. You're right. But I was thinking to myself, like the fast growing stuff probably doesn't have a lot of that stuff. It's the stuff that's like the tuna mm-hmm. stuff. that's the top of the food chain. Yeah, I guess maybe right. stuff that scavenges in a, in a, in a pollution zone or something, snails and stuff like that, that, you know, uh, assemble their shells maybe out of that crap. I don't know. But anyway, we're just bullshitting, I guess. Sorry. Yeah. Well, the other, the other thing to consider too, is that you're not using these at a large scale, mm. you know, I mean, the, the IMO that we're creating an IMO one collection, you end up with a half a gallon of it. And that turns into like, you know, 10,000 pounds of IMO four that you're using over 10 acres. So even if it has, you know, some heavy metals, and even if it's somewhat high in heavy metals, the amount that you're actually broadcasting is so incredibly minimal. I, I would be surprised if when used appropriately, it was problematic. Does, and that doesn't mean don't test it. I, I do agree. Always test all your inputs, always know what's going on. But I mean, I've used seaweed FPJ for years until I realized we had an issue with the bladder rack um, population this year. But um, 
you know, we've, I've used that as part of my nutrition program for going on four years now and never had any trouble with heavy metals. There was actually, I was just poking around. There's a, this set of Australia, but they're using them cool. like fertilizer. So there you go. There you go. people are working on it. Does it say what, what, like anything specific in there that might be like unique to just them? Is there any like compound or something that they're toting coming from that urchin? Maybe there's like a special. I'm not sure. I can send you the link though. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's, it's always good to, to try and find ways. I know a lot of people do that with carp for uh, FAA uh, because carp are such an invasive species and they're great for making fertilizer. Yeah. And waste, any of the fish waste, like, you know, going and um, the, the tuna boat that we bought tuna from this year um, that is uh, that we, we can ourselves. And when we went and bought our tuna, you know, she was just like, oh, you know, we have to pay for them to take away the waste. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'll come, I'll come take all of your waste away for nothing. <laughs> but again, it's, and it, while we say, you know, again, what about the mercury? What about Fukushima? What about this? What about that? But I'm using it at a one to 1000 ratio for only a small part of the plant's life. And, you know, so far we're, we're doing great. So, um, What's great just something is to consider that when we talk about it's we we need to consider ratios and keep in mind how much you're using not just what you're using and what's great too now is with all the radiation from fukushima you can actually see the plants at night you can work you know i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, also, i just want to agree that there i am a big believer in that you you don't need large doses of things to make a big difference i've done something as simple as if I go to the beach, like I live in Michigan, I'm blessed to live in Michigan where we're surrounded by freshwater, these gigantic freshwater lakes that look like oceans. If I get out to one of the lakes, the big lakes, I always try to make sure I get like some, some little container or something of the, uh, of the sand. They're not always sand beaches. Sometimes they're rocky beaches. So I gotta go out in the damn water and get the sand, but, and then I bring some back and I just sprinkle, I got like these 40 foot long, uh, raised beds I've made and uh, I just made like hugel beds with all my old stalks and stems I threw them down in there <laughs> it's it's a whole thing but anyhow and I just sprinkled just a little bit of sand like you're sprinkling salt over the top of your soil and watered it in and went out there maybe a half hour later or something and just walking past my beds it smelled like not the ocean but it smelled like the beach and it was just that little bit of sand you know and of course, I mean, that year, I mean, I don't know if it was anything to do with the sand, but that year they, they did fucking amazing. So, you know, it's well, not you're, scientific, you're, but I mean, that's at least uh, my experience. But again, those, those, um, you know, that sand that you added is full of a whole different host of micronutrients that, you know, if you have fungal biology and, and yeasts and bacterias that are able to break that down and make it plant available, it's, it's those small things. I mean, you look at how much plants need, like how much boron or molybdenum a plant needs. And it's very, very minimal. It is a tiny amount, but it is incredibly necessary. So again, yeah, just thinking about how do we do things more simple, more cheap, more easy, and in a more, you know, cycle with nature. And I mean, I've found that 
the more I do it, the easier it gets. The more I'm just like, oh, sweet. Like I didn't really do anything this year. I didn't do yeah. a whole lot at all. And, you know, we're doing, we're do- we, we got some powdery mildew this year. Um, there's a little bit of mold out there. It's not horrible. Uh, but I also did not do IMO the way I normally do. I really kind of just went, well, maybe I'll let it just kind of take care of itself. And as probably a bit of a misstep on my part, <laughs> probably shouldn't have quite done that yet. But you know, um, what's great is your garden just tells you these things. That's kind of that kind of leads to a question I wanted to ask you, Wendy. Do you see any like um, like does the law of diminishing returns show itself? in IMO over time? Like, do you find that, that you don't, year 10, you don't need as much as you might have year one, or if you put the same amount on, you don't get the same return. Like, is that, is that a thing? Is that? I, I, uh, you know, it's hard for me to say that because I've only been doing this really consistently for four years. Um, what I will say is that there's definitely a curve up that's exponential at the beginning because when you're first collecting IMO, you have like a very limited amount of collections, which means you have a limited amount of diversity. And I've really come to believe that year three is kind of like the golden year where you just, I like year one, if you hit it hard and you hit it pretty hard in year two, year three, you're kind of like at that point, you're kind of cruising. Like you don't have to do as much. Um, and then, like I said, uh, because I was like year three, I didn't have to do so much year four. I just went, well, I guess it's all good. Right. And then I went, ah, no. All right. Well, I mean, it's still great. It's like, you know, people aren't coming in and being like, whoa, what happened to your plants? They're like, this is pretty dope. Like, this is a nice little, you know, um, we had all kinds of other issues this year, though. So <laughs> that could have could have been part of it also. <laughs> um, but as far as IMO goes, like it really the more you do it, the more diversity you get. And I don't know that there's a limit to that that becomes negative. I, I think that's just gonna be something that continues to return better and better and easier and easier. Uh, we don't have a ton of information about that with cannabis specifically. I know that Chris's family on the islands, like basically their macadamia nuts, their trees were more productive for a longer time than industry average and they continued to get more productive when they should have been on their decline and um and i'm pretty sure he attributes that mostly to the natural farming that they were doing i think i think cannabis is going to be very similar um we don't like i don't i don't know people always freak out and they're like oh my god is that botrytis i'm like oh that little spot yeah sure and i'll just rip it off and like dig a hole and stick it in the ground and everybody's like oh my god what are you doing you're supposed to put that in a bag and take it away and like burn it and i'm like I mean, yeah, I guess, but it's everywhere. It's not like that botrytis magically appeared from the botrytis unicorn that flew over my field farting. You know, I mean, it was there already. I'm not going to get rid of it by just removing that one bud. And my thought process, which is totally bro science, undocumented, no validating like anything other than it makes sense to me is that if I'm putting that thing in the soil, if there's something in that soil that likes to eat that thing, it's going to eat that thing and become more prolific. And that thing is going to become less of a problem. Uh, What I find is that with my outdoor grows, there's a few cultivars that I won't touch with a 10 foot pole because they are prone to botrytis. They get mold. You know, I'm just like, I'm just, I know I'm not going to grow those. 
And other than that, like we don't have a ton of problems with botrytis. I don't grow plants that are prone to powdery mildew. And even when I do, I know I keep my eye on it. And, you know, I, and I don't have the same powdery mildew issues that a lot of other people do have. So, you know, is that because we have, you know, if it's got powdery mildew, I drop it on the ground and bury it. Maybe, maybe not. I don't really know, but, um, yeah, I got off course there a little bit, but yeah, I mean, basically oh, like, sense. oh, it ties, right, it ties right into what you were just saying. That makes sense. Yeah. You're using this, the same technique. And then, then the sticks too, like people are always like, oh, you know, your stems have this black mold all over it. That's gotta be botrytis. It's gotta be stem rot. Aren't you worried? And I'm like, not really. Cause I don't really know that that's what that is. And, um, we just found, I pulled the stick out of the garden beds today that has these little it's a old weed stem and it's got these little tiny white mushrooms growing on it and I was like ah this is the coolest thing I've ever seen I love it like and it has a bunch of that black mold on it too and I'm like you know it's not on my plants it's just in nature and I mean you can fight nature as much as you want but unless you're going to be boy in the bubble you're you're going to lose nature is going to win so we might as well get used to it, get bolstered to it and you know boost our own immune systems against the things that are dangerous by, you know, the normal process of building an immune system, which is being exposed little by little. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that's a way idealistic point of view, but it just seems to me that, you I know, like, I don't think it's idealistic. I think that's what we do as cannabis growers. We stress the plant on purpose to make it the response we need. If we didn't stress these plants, they'd be wimpy ass plants that wouldn't even hold their own buds up by the end. Which so. I've grown those too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just saying it's the same idea. You're just doing the same thing with the immune system. You challenge that immune system and it activates its defenses. So that now when something does show up, it's already there. It's already within the plant going. So um, then if you just kind of tie that back to what we were talking about earlier, it's not as much of a threat to you because you're not trying to grow in a vacuum. Like, whereas exactly. before, if you didn't have a well-established environment and you saw something like that, it could very well take over something very quickly but if you have a healthy system it should be able to survive that stem breaking down in your soil without it dominating it um just out of natural competition so you know and if it wins that it battle that's everything. a win yeah i got one more question before i forget um rightfully so as cannabis growers we tend to focus a lot on the cannabis plant and and its life cycle and the season it grows in but i'm curious wendy what do you do in the um the off season is there any any management protocols you have or any any um other aspects of regenerative farming that come into play after the plants have been harvested and before the plants go back in the field in the spring and the those off months is there anything any regiments you go through any protocols any maintenance yeah. Yeah, I, I was laughing because I'm like, there is no such thing as an off season anymore. Like <laughs> once your business actually gains traction, you're like, oh no, that's when we're marketing and developing relationships and educating. And, uh, but as far as the farm goes, yeah, um, we do cover crop. So I just use a really simple green manure cover crop. It's fava beans, winter peas, and uh, a vetch. And you what you're supposed to do is grow these cover crops until they're you know starting to flower they haven't set seed yet 
they're maybe two or three feet tall. They're still full of juicy, tender green hormones and things. And then you're supposed to chop them or crimp them and let them decompose into the soil. Um, but if you're me or, or maybe Spartan, you're probably going to leave them way too long because you're a sprawl grower and uh, you're <laughs> and then you get to spin it and say, look, I'm saving seed for next year. <laughs> and then but, you just yeah. let it fall down and plant itself, too. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much that's exactly kind of what we did. I was like, oh, then you have beans growing up through the middle of your weed and it's beautiful. And you get to talk about polyculture. <laughs> Why don't you? Uh... <laughs> You have a lot of experience with which cover crops not to grow. I've heard you talk about a yeah. couple of different ones that you've had some different experiences with. Um, would you like to educate people a little bit on maybe some some cover crops that maybe they you know have heard are good but maybe aren't so much? Yeah, and and just to clarify, um, the cover crops I'm talking about are called winter cover crops, and they're used for creating a cover on a fallow field. So instead of just letting it be bare soil. Uh, we used to just mulch in the winter and now I'm like, oh, heck with that. We want something living. And that's specifically so that all the microbiology in the soil will stay alive and active because there are root systems involved. If you take the root systems out and there's nothing alive, your microbiology oftentimes will go dormant. If you have that exposed to sun and rain and there's no mulch on it at all, they will definitely go dormant and or die. So you want to have your bare soil covered no matter what. And then when we're talking about cover crops that are more of a companion plant, we get into a whole nother realm of, oh, fuck, what did I do <laughs> quite often? So white Dutch clover was one of those. I was like, oh, everybody talks about the white Dutch clover. It's a great cover companion plant because it grows short and it'll fix nitrogen and it's a pollinator plant it's going to be wonderful I was excited I bought like I don't know a 25 pound sack of the stuff I spread it everywhere it came up it was prolific it was amazing and then it got spider mites and then it got thrips and then it banked both of those pests and I was like ugh. and then I could not get rid of them because they were living on the clover and they were moving up and down between the clover and the cannabis. And so I couldn't spray just the cannabis because it was on the clover, but I couldn't spray just the clover because it was also on the cannabis. And then it'd be underneath the clover. And if you can imagine a field of clover, how do you spray underneath those leaves? You can't. And then it grew three feet tall and it started out competing things. And, and then it came back from rhizomes and it came back from its own seed. And I was like, oh, I will never plant this stuff again. So I am not a fan of the white Dutch clover. I feel like it is a, I don't know who decided that was a good plant to companion plant with, but whoever they are, they should be drawn and quartered because they're, and maybe they're in like, I don't know. Probably garden stores, Montana. honestly, like regular garden stores because it's pretty. Like it's, like it looks really pretty. <laughs> don't don't hate me, but I have two planters <laughs> of my Dutch clover. I'm laughing as you talk about this because it does this. Yeah, of course. But what I love about it for me in a planter because it can't escape. So well, it tries. It hangs over and it gets fucking all over the place. But the cool thing is, is when I cut that shit down, you it think it's right dead. Up. Yeah, you think it's dead. I, I, when you said that you got a 25 pound sack, I'm like, oh my God, because I got like a, literally like a, I paid a dollar for like, I don't know, maybe I don't, I couldn't even tell you how many, maybe 30 seeds, but it was enough to, I mean, I, I got leftover <laughs> and, 
and I don't need it, man, because this stuff, every time I cut it down, it just comes back. You'd think it was dead, but nah, it's, it's back. So I feel you. I know exactly what you're talking about. If, if it didn't, like, you know, if it hadn't grown so tall, I probably wouldn't have had as much of a problem with it. And if it hadn't banked all those pests, I would have, it'd be great. I'd be like, oh, this is an amazing thing. You plant one that goes wonderful. I mean, the amount of biomass off of it is just phenomenal. It's a great pump. But, you know, like I said, I mean, I just, the, the bugs were, atrocious and and there's still i still have trouble with them and i still have trouble with that damn clover it's been four years five years i think and i have little okay but i will say that i also do have it in the walkway where i tromp on it so it stays low and there's no bugs on that i think it's probably because i tromp on it um and there is one little patch that does have four leaf clovers so it has redeemed itself just this much for me for a walkway (laughs) I think that's another carryover from uh, indoor gardens being that we need a low cover crop because we're height challenged and we need a legume. And I, th- I think that's another carryover from the indoor, indoor gardens. Yeah. I think, I think it did come a lot from like standard organic gardening practices. Um, I, and I think a lot of these things come from things that people are like, Oh, this is a great idea. And it just gets propagated out without people really recognizing maybe not such a good idea. Um, another one is Columbine. So Columbine is a beautiful flower. I love them, but they bank thrips. They're a great thrips banker. And I saw this in a couple of grows, uh, more than a couple of grows now that where it was in, um, it's in, I think Build-A-Soil has a, has a cover crop mixture that it's included in. And um, it might not be them, it might be somebody else. But I know that if you look at, make sure if you're buying like a cover crop mixture, Make sure you're sourcing down all of them and make sure that you want all of those plants in your mixture. And if you don't buy each thing separately, which is also a cheaper way to go anyway, like instead of buying these, these customized mixes that are, when you look at the percentage, it's like 98% white Dutch clover or whatever the cheapest plant is. And then small percentages of all these other ones. For me, I, I really prefer to custom blend. So I don't want Columbine in near my weed at all. I love Columbine. I have it growing in my backyard, but it has its own space. And then I know if it has the silvering on the leaves that is so indicative of, you know, it's just this modeled kind of silvering on the top of the leaf structure that's thrips. And usually you can turn it over and see them running around. And um, I, I avoid that near anything that I care about. That's not an ornamental. Those can stay over in their ornamental area. That's fine. I don't really, you know, it's not that damaging, but I prefer to not include something that I know is going to bank a pest that also translates to cannabis. So I don't like to do that. Um, I do, on the other hand, love brassicas as I didn't at first. So here's something interesting that's come about that's fairly new science is that uh, we've always been told that bra- the brassica family, which is like kale, collards, um, broccoli, cauliflower, these cold weather crops, mustard greens, right? We don't want to use those as a companion plant for something like cannabis because they actually have an allopathic nature in their roots, which means that they are antifungal, if you will. They're literally not forming the same fungal relationships and they're actually causing the fungi to not want to be there. They're making it inhospitable. So if you grow that next to a plant that wants to have fungal relationships, you're kind of sending mixed messages. However, 
what's come out now um, is that previously they said brassicas do not form endomycorrhizal relationships. Right. New studies are showing that's not true at all. Right. In the presence of Bacillus subtilis, I believe it is, they are forming those same relationships. And Bacillus subtilis is in almost all of our native soil. So I find it really fascinating that my brassicas that are in my beds that I used as part of my cover crop years ago, and I let them go to seed because I like to save seed, not because I'm a lazy farmer. Hey, they have pretty <laughs> flowers that bring in pollinators. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is, I was feeding the bees in the early season. Uh, <laughs> but those same brassicas that keep coming back it's, it's really a cool educational tool because they get aphids really badly, but those aphids are not moving to my weed. They're staying on the brassicas. The brassicas also get powdery mildew, which is great. Well, I had this amazing product. Um, I've actually seen this more than once where somebody says, here's my brand new product and you only treat your plant once and you'll never get powdery mildew. And here's my proof because I have a bindweed or a cucumber or a whatever it is covered in powdery mildew and it's climbing up my cannabis plant, but my cannabis plant does not have any powdery mildew. And I'm like, that's not proof because powdery mildew is very specific to its host. There's like, I think like 12,000 species of powdery mildew or something just mind bogglingly large. And almost every single one of them is specific to one or two plants. So the PM that's on your brassicas and that's on your cauliflower and that's on your, um, you know, your squash or your cucumber is not the same species that attacks your cannabis. So I let my brassicas, I, I minimize them in my beds, but I found that the plants that are near them are growing as well um, as the plants that are not near brassica families. And it's, it's a great teaching tool to show people because they're like, oh my gosh, look at how diseased this one plant is. And that's also partially because that brassica is in a very diverse fungally dominant soil. And I think they're much happier in a bacterially dominant soil, even though they do okay, because there's, I believe, I believe because there's bacillus subtilis, I believe they're still making communities to be big and healthy and strong for the most part, but they are very, very prone to pest and disease. Wendy, have you, um, so you, you mentioned you grow the cover crop, the winter cover crops, mm -hmm. um, and were in your location, those live into the spring or they, they succumb to winter. I don't know how severe winters are down there. Ours, ours survive. We don't do winter kill. Um, if, I lived somewhere colder, I would do like a winter rye that does get cold killed because it'd be so much easier. Because again, it's not that I'm a lazy farmer, it's that I'm a busy farmer, <laughs> which is actually very true. You know, it's like spring hits and there's a lot to do on the farm. There's a lot to prep and there's a lot to get ready for. And so if I had something that nature would take down for me, I would probably be a happier camper. Um, but where I'm at those, those, I mean, I had fava beans that were, I think they were like six feet tall. It was this massive hedge. It was amazing. We, we had to, you know, we tried cutting them with machete. We tried like, it was, we had to end up weed whacking them with like one of the metal blades because they were so thick and tough, <laughs> like could not kill them. Um, and that was when it just, it got, you know, it so was to really that to that point, have you ever brought in uh, ruminants early spring to mob graze your cannabis 
area to because they have a different set of microbiology in their gut that they would then lend to the soil and the trade-off of green leafy food for what comes out the other end um is that is that anything you've you've tried before I have not done that just because we don't live on the farm. There's no house out there. So it's like we have to commute to work. Um, And that is animal husbandry is one of the major parts that I feel is lacking on our farm. I have a couple rabbits at home and I have a couple chickens at home, um, but it's not enough to provide for for the entire acreage of the farmland. And we do like next year, I'm hoping to be able to get a chicken coop so that we can start doing some meat birds or a chicken tractor of some kind. And I would love to have them come through. I really want goats. I really want sheep. I really want a cow or two. And it's specifically for that reason so that they can come through, do the grazing, you know, add the manure to the soil without me having to actually do much myself. Um, But I also have deer and, or deer, not deer. I do have deer, but that's not a problem. I mean, that's a different problem. I also have bears and I have mountain lions and I have bobcats and I have coyotes and I have foxes and skunks and raccoons and all of those like to eat everything that I just mentioned. So until we have like some really serious fences, um, we've also got a couple guardian dogs in Oklahoma that I need to go pick up. But um, so hopefully those will help as well. But again, it's, it's this balance of how do you, work with an animal or work with a, a, a crop, which I do consider animals to also be a crop. How do you work with, you know, living crops in different ways that help protect from other things if you're not there? So right. I was, I was curious if you had like a neighbor or a friend that would, that's already in that ruminant business that you could just say, well, let's borrow them for, you know, a week or two weeks, mob grace this down. And then we, like, there used to be people that did that around here and, they stopped doing it because, you know, what happened was there was a lot of people that would take these animals and then not have a barn or any safety for them. And then the big animals, the predator, apex predators came through and attacked them. And then it became, you know, not cost effective because how do you get somebody to pay for your new animals when they're like, well, it's not my fault. So um, that is not really a business that exists around here anymore. Um, but you know, if somebody had mobile, you know, housing for the ruminants and they could bring them in and have them graze or have enough of them where they could bring them in and, you know, have them take, go through the entire farm really quickly in one day, <laughs> like it would be great. But as it sits for the most part, people have to figure out how to get their own animal husbandry going to, to, you know, kind of fill that gap. Gotcha. But I love it. I think it's, I think it's something that is, an integral part of farming that most people are missing, myself included. That's yeah, that's why I wanted to bring it up because I honestly think that's one of the missing keys here in, in cannabis farming is we're missing that that animal component. We we do, on the other hand, have a plethora of cottontail bunnies and um, jackrabbits and deer that rapidly move through the farm in the winter when we leave the gates open or when they blow down and things. So we get that a little bit, but you know, not, not the same at all. We had a, another question from Chad, I think is a good one. Um, uh, someone asked how important is OHN? Um, okay. So my answer to that is twofold. Um, sorry, 
Um, so I think that OHN is incredibly important for human health. I take that stuff every single day. I've been taking it every single day for like four years. And I just, the only times I've gotten sick is when I forgot for a period of time or when I was traveling and I didn't bring it with me. And, and I'm not kidding. I mean, I got little kids and it was like, you know, two children in preschool and, you know, early elementary, like at the beginning, before I was doing OHN and doing KNF and things, um, I got sick every time they got sick. Like they would come bring their stomach flus and bring their colds and everything. And I was just like, this sucks. And since I started taking OHN every day, like I just, I do not get sick. And maybe there's a mentality there and a mindset and a placebo effect, but I don't care. Like if it works, I'm stoked and I'm doing it. So for human health, I, it's like the, probably the best thing I've ever done to build my immune system for plant health. I don't know. Honestly, I have not done a side-by-side -side excluding OHN. I think that it is, you know, I know that if it works this well for me, it's probably working that well for plants as well. You're using it at a one to 1000 ratio. So it is literally a homeopathic dose. There's barely anything in it. I mean, I take a shot of it, but, uh, <laughs> but for the plants, you know, it's just like a few drips. It's very minimal. And, um, so, I mean, I guess my opinion is, you know, if you're going to if you're going to go down the road of doing natural farming, I think you should include OHN. I think it's an incredibly important part of it. Uh, I don't have proof of that. I haven't done a side-by-side -side that excludes it, but I do know that in the times when I use it, it's, it's pretty massive. The differences you see, um, doing a soap when you're transplanting phenomenal. If you take your seed soak solution, the maintenance solution, it's basically a one to one one to 1000 ratio of OHN. So if you were going to make a thousand liters, you'd use one liter. It's, it's minimal. It's a milliliter for every liter that you're making. So a drip per liter. Uh, so OHN is used very little in that, uh, fermented plant juice is one to 500 and then a vinegar, a living vinegar, ideally a living grain vinegar, uh, at one to 500 as well. And if you take that and you mix it in a, you know, five gallon, batch of water or whatever, and you transplant, you soak your plant, the potting soil or the medium or whatever it is, if it's coming out of the aerocloner, give the whole roots just a quick dip in it and plant it. I did a side-by-side -side of that. And when I like looking at the plant height, it seemed to be pretty average. I was like, ah, maybe it didn't make any difference. But as soon as I up potted them, the amount of roots that the plants had put on that I had soaked was like almost double what was my control group that was just soaked in plain water. And I was like, oh yeah, once again, like I'm a fan of this and this is something I'm going to always do. Um, so yeah. So basically the long story of that is uh, for OHN, for health, for human health, I think it's, you know, absolutely a hundred percent worth doing for plant health. I think it's probably pretty important, but I don't really have evidence to back that up. I gotta be honest. I, I kind of cringe when, uh, when I see people taking the the uh inputs because um being an herbalist myself i i know there's gonna be a day when somebody makes an input with the wrong plant and takes too much of it and it's gonna lead to i would hate to jump to the death conclusion but um it's oh, gonna it's gonna scare the hell out of them 
it's not going to be this warm, fuzzy feeling. We're, we're lucky that the herbs that are in OHN are not any one of those herbs, but there's a plethora of herbs that can cause uh, complications if you, if you have too much of them internally. And I just, the herbalist in me just cringes when I see people do that because we need more herbal knowledge. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's fine for people to, to think, you know, can, cannabis is this panacea and it fixes all these other health ailments and, and it's, it's a wonderful plant because it is, but there's hundreds, if not thousands of other plants out there that are containing medicinal compounds uh, for good and bad. And a large majority, well, a large majority of them are safe, but there is this select group of plants that are called low dose. And if you happen to take too much of that you can't even go to the doctor and be saved by some of those. So um, the, and the insides of me just kind of twist up and cringe when I see people do that. But luckily, OHN is is fairly safe. And I have a feeling that you're, um, you're witnessing of not getting sick is coming from the, the ginger and the cinnamon and the uh, angelica and, and how that interacts with the immune system and cause circulatory stimulation and, um, but I, I just wanted to throw it out there that that the people need to be careful when you when you get off of the beaten path and you start to there's this bubble that KNF yeah. lives in and then there's all these other plants that KNF doesn't talk about but the methodologies can apply and once you get out of that bubble you need to be really careful about what you're doing to yourself or you could be in more trouble than you've ever been in in your life and I, I just wanted to put that out there yeah no i i completely agree and that's why the training is is very important like actually going and taking the time to be trained in this because you can like you're saying you can stray um i just was talking with a a lady who took chris's class in nevada city just recently and she was talking about the first time they ever made a fermented plant juice fpj and they went out and chopped down a bunch of this plant of what they thought was a certain plant and made this huge batch of it. And this herbalist saw their pictures and went, did you know that's a toxic plant? And they went, it is. Oh shoot. And there was like, she was like, well, there was, you know, 20 bucks worth of waste or 20 pounds of wasted sugar, but it is really important to know what plant you're using and know that it is a safe plant. I mean, I've seen like people, there's um, a bunch of people using pokeweed, which yeah. technically is non-toxic, but the berries are very toxic, right? And they're toxic to different, I believe to grazers, they can be toxic. And um, for me, I'm like, if there's even a chance that that is problematic to something out there somewhere, I'm not going to do it. Like I, I'm very specific. I make FPJ from things that I know for, it's like mushrooms, right? Like I can go out and cook as many mushrooms as I want, but the ones I eating or I'm eating are chanterelles because those are the only ones that I'm confident. I know what it is. People are like, Oh, there's chicken of the woods. I'm like, okay, maybe I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a mycologist enough to know for sure. I do have a lion's mane that grows on a, a certain log that I know is a lion's mane. And so when it comes up, I'll harvest that. But even as simple as like oyster mushrooms, like I'm not versed well enough in those wild things for me to feel confident eating them. It's the same thing with FPJ for me. If I'm not versed well enough to know for sure that I know exactly what that plant is without a shadow of a doubt, I don't FPJ it. 
I'm like, thistles, great. I know those are wonderful. Um, purslane, love it. I love my purslane. It's great. It's super easy. Um, my lamb's quarter, wonderful. That's an edible herb. You know, there's a couple things out there. That I'm like, I don't know, it's some kind of wild amaranth or something. And at the beginning I was like, it's, I'm not sure. I think it's a pigweed, but I don't know. And I actually had to wait for it to bloom. And I had to track it down and make sure that I knew exactly what species of amaranth that was, because I don't know for sure that there aren't ones that wouldn't hurt me. And, you know, from a, from an anecdotal story, like perfect example, I have these beautiful red scarlet runner beans. They're gorgeous, beautiful blooms. They make these wonderful pods. The beans are like purple and speckled with pink and they're just gorgeous, gorgeous beans. And I read, I was like, oh, you can eat these. That's great. So I was out there and I like picked a young one and I was munching on it. I'm like, oh, this is really good. And then I ate another one and then I ate another one. And then I ate someone that was slightly bigger. And then I spent the entire night vomiting prolifically. And towards the end of it, the vomit tasted like arsenic. And I started thinking somebody had poisoned me. And then I kind of like had this brain flash where I'm like, shit, I think I poisoned myself. I have this like that. I looked it up and sure enough, it was like classic symptoms of a toxic a toxicity that larger sized runner beans have that if you cook them, you know, it goes away. But if you don't cook them, you can get really sick. And I was like, damn it. Oh. <laughs> Reminded me of the story of that, that kid who went to Alaska and ate the wrong kind. He thought they were pigeon peas and there was something else. And he like died up there. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to go down like the guy from Into the Wild. <laughs> I just so want to go back just, real quick. You know, and- And I want to back you up on the pokeweed being toxic. It's toxic. The roots are toxic. The stalk is toxic. The the greens are toxic. And so are the berries. Now, I already saw a comment in chat that said, well, I eat poke salad. Yeah, you do. The the greens are usually boiled like 10 times to reduce the toxicity just so you can't eat them. So that's that's one of those low dose herbs I was just mentioning. Poke. There's a lot of people use now yes. and i'm like no kobe, yes. kobe guy was one of the ones he was like i used i made it once and he's like i didn't like it it made me itchy i it was horrible i decided not to use it i dumped it out and started looking into it more and it's like i'm not going there and there's tons of people doing it right now because it's a horribly invasive weed super invasive it's hard to get rid of man i'm always beating the shit out of it every time it grows fast and it's super vigorous but i'm worried about my dogs i've got two dogs and you know they like to freaking because i have awesome gardens or fairly good gardens i don't want to pat myself on the back too much and i let them just go in there and eat what the fuck they want because it's the same food i eat so why not and yeah. so they'll munch on just about anything to test it out to see if they like it so that kind of stuff that i know is is really bad for them you know i don't want to lose them to me being lazy and not you know beating the shit out of the pokeweed but if that's, i that's, remember that's correctly pokeweed's one of those ones that does your liver and so it's not something you'll see. It's just by the time it's a problem, it's too late. Um, too late. Yeah. So on that note, uh, if you ever take bad mushrooms, one of the best things you can take is holy thistle or milk thistle. Uh, that actually can temporarily protect the liver. Uh, if someone happened, if you know for sure someone ate something, especially toxic mushrooms that attack the liver, um, it is one of the few antidotes that you can take immediately. That's often, you know, in North America, readily available as well in the same areas. Are you, are you, Steve, are you just like making that into a tea or are you just like really you tea or, to, or what? How would you try to, you try to get the, as much sap as possible into their stomach? 
So you, you can mix that into water and flavor it, whatever you can do to get it into them and keep it in is kind of the, in that emergency situation is what you do. So even if they're just sucking the sap out of the stalks, even it's just get it into there because that it has a compound into that, but those, and most thistles have it, but the holy thistle and milk thistle have a much, much higher amount of it. I don't remember the name of the compound, but it goes into your bloodstream really easily and that helps protect the liver and bind up a lot of those toxins. Um, that can really hurt you real bad. Um, I know you're, uh, we've, we've held you for quite a while. Did you want to uh, mention the, the Gongier program here uh, uh, and anything else that you wanted to, to make sure we included before we wrap our time up with you? Hey there. Hello. This is my daughter, Coral Lynn. Yes, she likes to, uh, she grows things and builds soil and is an awesome yeah. little farmer too. Um, they actually, like she like, yes, we all, we love our worms. Um, awesome. Her sister a couple of years ago, they grew a giant pumpkin and won a hundred bucks as uh, the best junior farmer. So it was pretty cool. Um, so that yeah, Don awesome. program is something that, yeah, it was cool. Um, no. Um, so the Gangier program is something that uh, we have created through Greenflower Media, and it really came from a what we saw to be a, a lack in the cannabis community between getting good advice to consumers, and that generally is coming a lot of times from bud tenders. So how do we get the bud tenders to be um, really knowledgeable in advising people. And I mean, I would go into dispensaries and just be like, oh, you know, where's your best sun grown for someone that like, I'd like to, you know, get better sleep. So something for insomnia. And it's just like, they, they just, a lot of times didn't really know what to advise me on. And, you know, a lot of Vietnam vets that we had would come to our booth when we were still boothing and they would say, you know, I keep going into these dispensaries and get told to just it makes me mercine and cannabinoids oftentimes equal anxiety and paranoia. So Derek, Gil, uh, so Derek Gilman from Greenflower Media kind of put this project together and said, what if we were to create a sommelier program for cannabis, right? So sommeliers are aficionados of wine that are well-studied. Generally, they work for fine dining. They curate uh, sellers for either fine dining or for private consumers. And, you know, they're the people that like, as they go up further and further in sommelier levels, because there's four total levels of sommelier, as they go further, they're the people that you can hand them a glass and they wouldn't just say, oh, this is a red wine. They'd say, you know, Oh, this is a Cabernet Sauvignon from Carneros Valley that was vinted in 1974. Like they know the year, they know the type of grape, they know where it was from, they like know everything about it. So this is just the very, very first level of that. And it is, I believe we have 10 different courses online that covers, um, you know, over there's over 30, I, if I remember right, I think there's like 34 modules and 10 courses and we cover everything from history to the endocannabinoid system to genetics to consumption, uh, you know, uh, cultivation, the whole nine yards. At the end of that, or at some point during that, you come and take a two-day live training here in Humboldt County. That's in far 
armed. And then once you get the live test that goes uh, the entire day, there's a written portion, there's a customer interaction protocol portion, and then there is what we call the SAP app, which is patent pending. And it is a four part way to assess cannabis. It includes the smell, it includes the flavor, it includes the high, and it includes the looks as well as having a data accumulation page about who grew it and how they grew it and things like that. And it's been phenomenal. Um, the program has just been mind-blowingly good. We had the first 158 students sign up. We had our first 14 certified gongiers just graduated uh, last. So, um, and enrollment is reopening for the next set of students in October, I believe. So if you guys are interested, anybody out there who's listening, um, there is a full enrollment package and I think it's like 2,500 or 3,000. There's also payment plans that are available. Um, we're working, I, my farm was going to have some scholarships that we were gonna sponsor, but unfortunately the California cannabis market tanked. So <laughs> that won't be this time, but maybe next time. Um, and uh, yeah, and then there are also partial uh, paths. So you can just start with the online portion and then you can pay for the live training separate and then you can pay for the exam separately if that's what you need to do. But it's been great. I mean, we have students from all over. We've had our first international students come through from both Canada and Germany. And um, the people that are finishing this are just really doing amazing, important work. We have advocates in Virginia and the Carolinas that are helping to write the laws over there. We have um, Gangiers, certified Gangiers that are doing curated events already. We have people that are you know, we've got some lawyers in the program that want to be expert witnesses. And they're like, I want to go on to that witness stand. And I want to, you know, not only have the, um, not only have the policeman that I'm talking to realize that they don't know what they're, you know, that not only that they're wrong, but that they actually have no idea what they're talking about. So it's been just, I, I, I can't say enough about it. It's been one of the real joys for me this year is being able to have all these people come through this program learning all about cannabis and then coming to a regenerative farm and just having people be like wow this is amazing i've never seen a cannabis farm at all let alone one that is just so you know this amazing regenerative thing where there's all these different plants and all these things growing with it that's me in an IMO pile. <laughs> I was going to say, can you explain the IMO bath? I've seen this yeah. and you've actually done it. So if you could explain it to people, because a lot of people don't understand. It's amazing. People are like, you're like, what were you doing? You're covered in a pile of dirt. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm covered in a pile of living indigenous microorganisms. So this was IMO three. Um, we had, this was at a, um, client that's in Napa Valley. They manage 175 acres of vine or sorry, 750 acres of vines. Uh, this is their, I think second or third, this is their second season running trials with Korean natural farming on grapevines. And, um, as part of their preparation this year, they made a large scale IMO three pile and then a large scale IMO four pile. So this had over a dozen different collections of um, indigenous microorganisms in it. And it was, I think, a 5,000 pound pile, if I recall. And uh, there was, I think, four of us that got buried in it. So Chris Trump was there and he buried us all. And it was 
an incredible experience. It was absolutely bizarre. I was one of the last ones in or one of the first ones in, I think I was the second to get buried and I was the last one to get out. And, um, it it's bizarre, but it is hot under there. Like it is 120 to 140 degrees and you lay there and you kind of, at first it's kind of itchy and a little bit uncomfortable, but it's nice and warm at least. And then you start sweating. And then like, I literally had an experience where you, you don't feel like you're laying there anymore. You don't feel any pokey scratches. You don't feel anything like your body just kind of disappears. And, um, it was phenomenal. I, I really, and everybody, if you ever get a chance to go get buried in an IMO pile, well, make sure that the people who are collecting the IMO are really good at what they do and have really good collections. Otherwise you could be buried in something really funky and gross. Um, but it was a phenomenal experience, highly recommended. That's really cool. Uh, uh, when do you open your IMO spa? Next year. <laughs> you want to touch a little bit on the success of, um, of people growing with wine at scale as well, because you know, again, if people often say it doesn't work at scale, I think if wine growers are using it, I think that's a pretty good uh, retort. Yeah, well, and it's it's fascinating because I didn't realize, um, you know, like once you kind of move out of your own little agricultural bubble, it's really fun and interesting to see what kind of things other people are experiencing. So like wine, wine's been in trouble this year. Like the grapevines have been having a lot of problems in Napa Valley. There's severe drought. And unless you're already kind of dry farming or, you know, farming in a state of perpetual dehydration, your plants don't do well. They're used to water. They're addicted to water and you can't just take that away and expect them to do okay. So the vines were having a lot of trouble with things like that. Um, we're having all this weird weather. So late freezes and early freezes, which are causing problems with the fruit set, causing problems with the budding originally, the, the flower budding of the fruits, um, just kind of all kinds of craziness. And um, what we found, what we heard back from these, from this couple, Leslie and Doug, they run Hill, Hill Valley, Hill, oh shoot, Hill Estate, I think is the, is their winery. Um, that's one of theirs specifically. Um, but they did a 10 acre trial. And what they found was that the vines that were doing bad, were still doing better than the bad vines in other areas. And the vines that were doing good, were doing really, really well. Um, so, you know, they did a one acre trial the first year and they did 10 acres this year. And as they continue to see success with this, they're going to continue to expand it. So um, especially when we talk about drought in California, you know, it's, it's become more and more understood and more and more supported by different case studies and anecdotal evidence that the more we go towards this fungal dominance in our soil, the more drought resistant our plants are. So I think there's something there that is really specific to this type of natural farming because it does create such a large, diverse fungal, um, fung such a large fungal diversity in your soil that you have this wonderful balance that's towards that. And there's all these kind of um, not unknown, but like less recognized side effects, like the fact that they don't need as much water. 
so yeah i mean to to wrap it up basically like we're you know we're seeing this in you know hop farms we're seeing it in um there's a farmer in ohio i think it is that's doing a thousand acres he's doing he's crop rotates with soybeans and um corn and something else and he's doing natural farming over there um, you know, the vines that we're seeing in Napa, we're seeing success there. So it's not, this is definitely not something that's just for cannabis. This is something that's really, really effective for all farming. I mean, my first, second year using IMO in my garden bed, and I had a lemon cucumber plant that produced over 150 lemon cucumbers before I stopped counting. I was like, this is ridiculous. I have an amazing garden too, but you know, it's like, I'm like, okay, this was nothing to do with me. I grow lemon cucumbers every year. And there's usually some extra. And this was just like, we were like, you know, having lemon cucumber wars and throwing them and fermenting them and putting them in the compost and feeding them to the chickens. And I couldn't figure out what the hell to do with them all. There was way too many. So. <laughs> the problems to have as an organic farmer, right? First world right. problem. Uh, well, Interesting. Uh, I want to tell everybody how to uh, how to find you here. Uh, I wanted to kind of wrap it up here and just say that you'll be one of the speakers at the the second annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. You had an amazing talk last year. Everyone can find out uh, and watch her her talk from last year. It's it's posted in a, its own playlist right on the Potent Ponics YouTube channel. Uh, we've also have that in audio format over on whatever platform it is that you listen to podcasts. Uh, we have we're on pretty much everything at this point. So. Um, but um, here's the fire for, for her. And then uh, I figured I'd throw up the schedule as well. Um, thanks again for taking the time to come out and, and help educate people. Um, we have a whole event here, the um, November 13th and 14th from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. She'll be speaking at 8 p.m. Pacific on November 13th. So definitely check that out. We have a, a great lineup of speakers. And um, so uh, how else can people find you and, and the education that you put out there? Yeah, and, and thanks for putting that conference on, Steve. It's awesome. I love that you're doing it for free. Um, I think if you if it's a virtual conference, like doing it for free is a phenomenal way to give back. So I really, really am stoked to be a part of this again. And um, other than that, you can find me on Instagram at Sunabis, S-U-N-N-A-B-I-S, like sun-grown cannabis. And that's probably the best way. Uh, my email is wendy at sunabis.com, but... Uh, if you're just reaching out to kind of touch bases, I get a lot of emails. So um, I'm more responsive with Instagram um, messages. Um, and we have a website, www.sunabis.com, has information. It's a little out of date right now. I apologize, but uh, we, we are working on getting that updated. And um, yeah, we'll be relaunching the brand this year. So if you are in California and you go into a dispensary, ask them why they don't have cannabis on the shelves. And the reason is because we don't have branded product out right now, but um, like I said, we're gonna be relaunching so that people can find us easier and experience KNF outdoor full sun cannabis. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I don't wanna take up your whole night, you've already been uh, giving us two two hours of your evening and I know you have a family and a farm and all kinds of other fun things. So yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me on everybody and um, I, I appreciate everybody's listening and I always love coming on so thanks for hosting. Appreciate awesome. it. Awesome thanks. meeting you. Take care. Yeah it was nice to talk to you Wendy.
Have a great night, guys. Cheers. Cheers. And uh, if you guys are wanting to see more of her, you can check out her talk from last year's virtual aquaponic cannabis conference and check out her talk at APM. We also have quite a few other awesome speakers, myself, Marty. Uh, I'm going to kick us off and Marty is going to close us out. So we thought that'd be a little bit different than last year, but I think it'll work well for, for doing uh, kind of beginning and end ceremonies and stuff like that. We have some really cool surprises, some cool guest um, surprise guest uh, moderators for the panels, which I think you guys are going to like and some other cool things that we've been cooking up uh, with some fun people. Um, but we have a lot of uh, people that you guys know and love. They're going to be talking on uh, aquaponics and cannabis. And then a lot of this, you know, a lot of the speakers are talking about how it relates to both aquaponics and soil. Um, it's not just an aquaponics conference. It's designed to be relevant. If you're an aquaponic producer, if you're a soil grower, if you're an aquaponic grower, if you're a cannabis grower, you're going to get a ton of great info across a bunch of different speakers, across a bunch of different training and a, a bunch of different backgrounds. So um, definitely check that out right on the Potent Pox YouTube channel, free on any platform that supports YouTube. Um, so thanks everybody for joining us. We also have uh, Cascadian and, and uh, Spartan Grown. Uh, what's going on, Cascadian? Uh, what's going on in your garden, man? Yeah? Uh, not a whole lot, man. I'm working on some pollination projects inside in the cannabis. Cannabis is inside. Everything else is outside. Uh, just working on making some seeds, trying to get started on my own projects because I've been testing and helping other people out for several years now. So finally got enough of uh, the right genetics and most of the right clones I want to use to to start doing my own work that I'm actually passionate about and put my own energy into something that can live on after I'm gone because nobody makes it out alive. But um, yeah, I, I just recently got the first one done. This is a little bit of the seeds. Not much, but it's a, it's a blue dream mashup. Um, kind of a little different take on it. So, what blue dream did you use? I, I actually used uh, two different crosses that had blue dream in it and brought it back together. So, grandma on both sides is the Santa Cruz cut of awesome. blue dream. Um, the mother in the cross is Snow High's Blueberry Blast. So, it's a blue dream that got pollinated by Johnny Blaze. Um, Blue Dream is a, a blueberry mother and a haze father, and then Johnny Blaze is a haze mother and a blueberry father, so they're kind of backwards and then brought together. And then the pollen donor on that is a Blue Dream grape soda skunk cross, the grape soda skunk coming from Mean Gene. So I'm interested to see how, how it plays out in the long run. I'm hoping for uh, Blue Dream Vigor, haze head with a little bit of the the grape soda skunk blueberry sort of palette uh, it's gonna take a little a couple of generations but i think i think it'll turn out really nice so i'm pretty That's excited exciting, about man i'm excited about that i have a buddy um he's on the michigan pro show with me baked pone and he is dying for the santa cruz cut i'm gonna tell him to talk to you maybe uh Maybe I'm, they can work out a deal or something, man. Because I'm actually yeah. actually looking for a couple of reputable people to to test them. So dude, I would let me. I'll, I'll we'll be in touch. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. let him know because he's dying for this shit, dude. So cool. sure. 
I was steering him towards uh, DJ Short. I was like, man, I know DJ Short did his version. It's called like Azure Haze, and he just took a, his Haze versus his Blueberry, and he did his own thing. So he's kind of looking that way. But, dude, I, I'm going to, yeah. Yeah. Touch. Yeah, get us in touch, and I'll, I'll get him some, and he can, he can see what he sees, and it'd be fun, man. Awesome. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's 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 the latest. Um, I've got some testers right now for for me and Gene in the tent. The uh, sweat crossed the line, so those will be fun. And then shortly after that one finishes, I'm getting ready to pollinate pre ninety eight Bubba with Northern Lights number one as sort of a uh, a pollen donor that I can use uh, a, a genetic bank of pollen donors that I can use to put on different cuts um i'm looking for a pure kush i haven't i had her and i lost her um so i'm trying to get pure the topanga canyon or the hollywood i, I kind of like to have them both to compare them i had the topanga and lost it and i'd like to take the pre-98 bubba northern lights number one and put it on the topanga to because topanga canyon and and pre-98 bubba are two of my favorite medicines on, on like a medical level they help me with my my injuries and my my issues so i'm trying to make medicine for myself and medicine for others with issues like mine so um getting ready to start that that pollen donor side of things by putting the northern lights number one on the pre-98 bubba um super super excited about that one i can't That's wait awesome dude i bet you get pine in there too i bet you're gonna get like just so much pine i'm 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 excited because I think they're related. So I'm kind of keeping it in the same ballpark. Pre-98 Bubba's very Northern Lightsy. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see. And I also want to use that as a, as a stepping stone towards a back, pro, uh, back cross project on, on Pre-98 Bubba to put Pre-98 Bubba in seed form. So there's, there's all kinds of offshoots. Um, yeah, lots of, lots of breeding projects coming up. There's some killer pre-98 Bubba cuts going around Oklahoma. In fact, I know, shout out to a friend of mine, Chase. He has a, a killer fucking cut of it up in Tulsa area. And uh, really, really, really nice old school smell. You know, smells like, you know, weed from back in the day. The other one I, I want to give an honorable mention to is the, uh, I'm going to take pre-98 Bubba pollinated with chocolate tie. Oops. Oh man, I can't. Oh, wait. dude, that'd I can't be wait. wait. I that'd can't be, wait. That'd be super interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm working right now with a cuvee F1 that I had. That's uh, when it was growing. It smelled like just like it reminded me of like cherry and tootsie rolls. Just the cherry and tootsie rolls. Um, and the first time I grew it, I, I felt that I grew it. I, I let it. I harvested it too late because the cherry kind of lost and, and it was just Tootsie Roll. Um, and then, but in the cure, I didn't, I got the smell of the Tootsie Roll, but nothing in the flavor. It was just nothing. So then, I, you know, I grew it again and I grew it again. And uh, I just can't get the cherry to really stick around. It's just, it smells amazing uh, while it's growing, but I can't lock that turpin so the only other strategy i have is um i'm gonna try to just harvest it really early and then uh press it you know what i mean get it washed and press it maybe it's just a concentrate plant maybe that's just all it is and i don't know i wish i could lock in with the way it smells because my god it smells fucking amazing but it goes away in the in the cure i can't keep it so 
it's frustrating but that turf is it's amazing if you can lock that in that chocolate that tootsie that tootsie roll yeah that's that's my like holy grail right there is that the chocolate coffee um there's a there's a freeway here when you drive down the freeway you get to this particular exit and whether the windows are up or the windows are down everything smells like coffee for about 30 seconds and i i drive through that exit i used to drive through the exit every day to go to go to the university uh it just make me salivate and just just can't i can't drink coffee i have a caffeine sensitivity so i can't drink coffee but when i smell coffee it takes me back to that that's that medicine i'm looking for that's that profile i'm i'm trying to harness so yeah chase that chase that fucking your body knows yeah man that's that's my holy grail right there that's that's what my world revolves around is that chocolate coffee quarter kind of ro- fresh roasted coffee tootsie roll kind of yeah that's that's what i'm looking for what uh so we you cascadian and and spartan we got two two great growers on here what are you guys's favorite ways to increase terpenes do nothing at all just let the plant do its own fucking thing you look for the ones that have the terpenes you're looking for it's a selection game to me um i'm not big on I'm not big on doing things I can't repeat. So if I have to do this certain series of steps to bring out this particularness of the plant, it's not, it's not there yet. Um, So it either needs more work. It needs more actual breeding work, or you've got the wrong plant of the population or yeah, I, I'm not really big on manipulating the plant past growing the plant healthily. Um, I'm not, I'm actually trying to get away from all of the bottles and all of the inputs and get to a more regenerative style that's not, it's not even necessarily KNF or JADAM because that's, that's a lot of inputs to me. That's a lot of things to juggle. Um, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Um, I'm, I'm looking for the plants that just naturally express themselves that way that's that's golden to me i found again and again in my grows that the most terpiest plants i've ever harvested and the ones that the most happiest with it's been when the soil was like the most alive like when i when i peel back a mulch layer and i get down there with my phone and then i magnify it up and i see like a million things crawling around you know what i mean just to be blunt with it i those are the grows that do the fucking just they just do amazing so it's like really to to be specific is like i I just try to foster the environment and like i kind of concentrate everybody knows the grow environment as far as the air is concerned but like the fucking soil you know i mean i like to have a good mulch layer i like to have uh to foster life there and it seems like it just takes care of shit you know what i mean it just takes care of shit for you if you can do that yeah i'm definitely these days focusing more on soil health and and letting the plant be what the plant is in that soil but focusing on soil health and focusing on building soil and in in diversity in the soil and um, not so much hyper driving the plant I, i that just doesn't sit right with me you know um but diversity in the soil keeping the soil building keeping the soil alive 
maintaining the uh, the integrity or the structure of the soil. Those, that's more of the things I'm focusing on now. I think the I think the best answer that we both kind of are kicking around the subject, but really it's like if you can maintain the same kind of environment. Um, the way I approach that is if I can get myself to do the most minimal amount of input so that it just kind of does its own thing. And it's hard for me not to keep that environment. But um, if you can keep that same environment, then your selection process, your selection of cultivars is what's going to get you the best outcome because you're just going to pick the ones that do the best in that environment and just hold that environment. Instead of trying to make that square peg go through that round hole find the round fucking peg man and just put that in that hole and uh i think that's a better strategy i kind of um i I noticed i treat my plants a lot like i treat myself and before i went into college before i got into college i was i was a bit of a garbage disposal i'd eat just about anything um and as i got into college you know i also hit a different uh, period in my my life. You know, I I was no longer a a I'm not an old man, but I was no longer a young man anymore. Uh, my stomach started to to rebel. It couldn't take that processed food. Couldn't take things coming out of a box. Couldn't take. It, it started to have issues. So I had to I had to go to uh, more to the source, less processed. Um, I had to do the cooking myself. I found that I'm, I'm, I'm happier and healthier if I, if I start with raw ingredients and make what I want myself. So I'm, I'm finding I treat my soil much the same way and that I'm trying to give it more of the raw ingredients. I'm trying to give it more uh, mulches. I'm trying to give it more diversified cover crops. Um, I'm trying to give it not just a single crop when I am growing a crop, but I'm trying to grow multiple things. Uh, I'm speaking towards my outdoor veggie gardens. Um, trying to find, you know, crops that grow well together, that that have symbiotic relationships. Um, and and with that has come the mentality to to not not necessarily do less, but be less processed and get away from things that come in a bottle and get away from you know, things that come in plastic, trying to put even everything I eat in glass if I have to. Um, so it's, it's kind of a philosophical change on my end. But yeah, it's it's when it comes to, to the plant expression, it's definitely about finding the, the round peg, not, not the, the square peg. You need you need the right phenotype in the population of plants that express that 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 trait that you're looking for if, if it's not enough then you've got the wrong plant you need to keep digging yeah that's that's my approach i really found that that really is the key to to boosting terps is is microbial biodiversity as a matter of it's through dual root zones or through living soil or knf inputs as long as you're diversifying those species, that's going to get you the best results and the best disease resistance and, and the best growth rates and everything else. That's really the, the trick to it. Uh, what about you, Spartan? Uh, uh, what's going on with you, grow? My, uh, my grow is actually, I've been reducing my grow a little bit. I'm down to one in my home grow anyway. <laughs> at work, we still, we're, we, yeah, we're still rocking it. But uh, at home, I'm down to one flower light going and one veg light going. Uh, 
I'm doing this on purpose because um, of my activism right now in my state. So I know I'll be, I'm making myself a huge target, which I'm willing to do, but I'm not going to give them any reason to shut me up because I'm, I'm going to be screaming. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep screaming. Um, what I talk about specifically is the uh, lobby group here in Michigan. I don't know if you really want me to get into all this on your show, but I'll do the quick synopsis. If you want to, a lot of people yes, don't know what's yeah. going on. And not only that, but like, it's a good example of like, hey, there is a chance at certain points to actually go do something rather than bitch online. You could actually get up off your ass and go do something and this is how. And then also, you know, we I think the first, before we really get into this in Michigan, I think the first strike we saw with this was how much Amendment 64 royally fucked up the, the California market, which was honestly a well-oiled machine there for a while. That They were making tax money. This is very similar. Very similar. Man. Businesses were making money. So, you know, you had a huge amount of jobs being created across the, the, the supply chain uh, and the prices were good for consumers. Everything was working fine. And they came in and screwed the whole thing up with bad regulation. This is why I am so adamant about uh, and against these legalization and name only bills that are, are totally screwing up the market right now, all in the name of quote unquote legalization. Uh, which, you know, and then ramming these through and, and completely effing the whole market up or, or taking it away from people that deserve a chance for equity share that have been typically, you know, preyed upon a lot of neighborhoods of color and other things that have been that, that deserve a chance to have a, a piece of the pie and have been victimized more than anybody else. And, and a lot of these other things are just completely pushed to the side with a lot of these bills. So why, why don't you tell everybody what's going on in Michigan? Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate you the time too, just to get the word out because it matters, man, because for one, I saw it coming from, well, not just me, the community saw it coming just from the example that we've gotten from California. And, you know, we can go down the whole list of all the states that it's happened. It seems like a rerun every time we see each state fall, you know, it's the same thing, you know, get medical in just to get the program. Then as soon as you get reckoned that this destroys your medical program until it's completely snuffed out. And then there goes homegrown, you know what I mean? Anyhow, and all your freedoms. So in Michigan right now, right now we're blessed. We're blessed by the fucking government that controls us. That uh, we're blessed to have a medical program, which consists of caregivers that can grow plants for patients. Or patients that could also grow just for themselves. So they can either the patient can have the, what do you want to call that? God-given right they should fucking have anyway to grow their plants or they can give that to their caregiver to grow for them. Because you got to remember here, a lot of these patients physically cannot grow. That's why there's a need for caregivers. So amongst the many things that peasants were able to do amongst the very few things that peasants were able to do on like landed gentry's properties in like feudal russia and shit was brewing their own compotes of like fruits and shit from the summer they would basically glean whatever that the the you know feudal lords didn't want for their own crops and they would keep whatever was left basically and ferment some shit for the winter a lot of times that shit would be alcoholic they basically right. brew their own shit 
that was not prohibited. Everything else was prohibited. They couldn't hunt. They couldn't break their own bread because they had like uh, communal uh, bread baking things that they could tax. All these kinds of things that we think are of uh, as normal were not prohibited, uh, or sorry, were prohibited uh, or taxed or anything else. But stuff like brewing your own freaking alcohol was not. So, for example, growing your own hemp, that wouldn't have been prohibited either because that's your vegetable garden. You know what I mean? That's yeah. just basic survival shit. So it's, it's very backwards that they prohibit that. It's stuff amazing. Now, right? That's fucking amazing. man. Yeah. And we call ourselves the land of the free. And, and there's countries that we snub our noses down, look at, and they in that aspect of their lives are more free than us. Which you would think is a bait. Like you said, is you think would be a basic, right? I mean. Uh, man, don't get me on a tangent, man. You don't get me on a tangent, man. I'm talking you guys think, about, I'm, you guys think I'm making grow, that up? Maybe look up bread stamps. I could grow a whole backyard full of pokeweed and fucking literally fucking kill people with it. Hmm. But if I had a whole backyard full of fucking a medicinal plant that would literally heal people with, I would be fucking put into jail. You know, oh, I was joking in the chat about hemlock. Hemlock's not illegal. Like it's it's wild in some places. I think exactly. it grows in Oregon, yeah. different places. You could totally just have a field of hemlock. Ninety five percent of people wouldn't know what that is. Just yawn. Whatever. I have volunteered nightshade, weeds. fucking growing under my pine tree yeah. somehow. It's because I have a big pile of wood underneath there. But fucking nightshade, yeah, wonderful. We're talking about poisonous plants, by the way. Like if you yeah. eat them and or drink them yeah. or drink a tea of them, you're. <laughs> Anyways, off my tangent. So what's going on here in Michigan is, is we have a medical program, which is the caregivers and patients. Okay. That was the first thing that was established in 2008. That's what got the, there was no dispensary. There was no way to get any legal weed other than off of a caregiver. Or if you were a patient, you had to have a doctor say that you had a condition that warranted you to be able to have cannabis. Now, after that, I think it was like 20, my date might be a little bit off, but it's like 2015, 2016, the, uh, what they call the adult use um adult use the mrta went into effect and what that was effectively it created the commercial market so they had a, they split it they had a commercial medical market and they had a commercial adult use market is what they call the two there so that's a totally different set of laws but it just set up the commercial and then the, what most people call dispensaries here in michigan we have to call them provisioning centers because if we say dispensary, that infers that it's medicinal and that fucking upsets the, you know, the boomers and they're making our laws. So we have to call them provisioning centers, but that's what set up the, we'll say the commercial market. Still, they're two separate entities, right? And then uh, we passed the law called the recreational market. And what that was, it was just gave, Anyone 21 or older in the state of Michigan is allowed to grow 12 plants as long as they're not a felon. That, that was the fucking give back was the felony thing. But so if you're 21 or older, you can just grow 12 plants without having to go see a doctor or any of that BS. You know, as long as you follow the laws as far as keeping an enclosed lock facility, you don't let other people get into it. You know, your normal, your normal laws, which was fine. So those are our three laws. We have a, a group, a lobby group. It's called the Michigan Caregivers Manufacturers Association. This lobby group is hired by, it's really funny, they, on their own website, they originally claimed, before we, before we shut them down, um, they originally claimed that they were the big three of cannabis. They represented 50 or no, it was either 40 or 50% of all of the multiple class C holders. And what that means in layman's terms is, is the, 
licenses that you can have the most amount of plants on the commercial side of things. And then they said multiple, which means stacked, which means you can have multiple of those licenses all at the same location. So you basically just double your plant count for every license you get. So we're talking big cannabis. Um, they said that, that everybody that all of the multiple class C holders, they have, they represent 40 to 50% of them in the state. So you know what we're dealing with here. And uh, they donate to this, the super lobby or whatever you want to call it. This lobby just doesn't like anybody that isn't them. Big cannabis. They don't like the big, we had the way that our laws just went in. Like I just explained, it kind of made the small craft cannabis flourish. You know, everybody knows when you grow something at home, it's going to be better than anything you do with commercial, just because of supply chain, just because of how long it sits on shelves and the, these big commercial growers, unfortunately do not grow the top shelf product. Theirs is all the mids throughout the whole state. Everybody knows it. It's just like the Miller light or the, the Budweiser of beer. You know what I mean? There's a market for it. Yes. You know, our market was $2 billion from October to October. Man, you want the best year. burger? You don't go to McDonald's, right? You don't go to Burgerville. You know, I'm a Burger King. You don't go to, <laughs> I hate to say it, but you don't go to Wendy's. You go to that local place that has somebody's name on it. And it's like a mom, pop place and the burger is more expensive and everything else. You know what I mean? Everyone knows that, right? Right. Exactly. So anyhow, the MCMA is now targeting the caregiver medical market because they funded a study that somehow figures out that 70 or 80 percent of all the sales of cannabis in the state of Michigan were illicit. Which is, I mean, just ridiculous, pulling bullshit out of their ass, right? Anyhow, so they are pushing legislation to uh, senators and, you know, they're shopping around the lawmakers saying, we got to push this bill. We got to push this bill. They crafted this bill that would reduce the amount. Basically a caregiver would uh, go right now. A caregiver can have up to five patients that they grow their plants for and take care of them. for. Okay. This new bill would reduce that to one. All right. Now they do give an option for a caregiver to keep their five patients if that caregiver wants to keep their five patients, they have to pay a $500 application fee every year. They have to pay a, uh, or they have, yeah, they have to pay, they can no longer transport any of their product and they have to pay a secure transporter, ridiculous, a secure transporter to transplant their goods back and forth. Everything will have to be logged, transactions through their patients and their overages through metric, which is already crashing all the time. So Nate, let's add, we have 30,000 caregivers. Yeah, let's add 30,000 more users to the metric system. That makes it, uh, that makes it really, like a really good idea. Hmm, I wonder who's making money know. there. Hmm, I wonder Probably who makes that money. I know what metric is. Metric is a super Orwellian um, tracking system that tracks way too much data that is completely irrelevant to whether any taxation. That, that's what it comes down to is, is that if it's not relevant to biosecurity and it's not relevant to taxation, piss off. There's no reason for you to be logging this stuff. None. Especially when they're talking about a law, this law for the caregivers and this is the caregivers and the patients. I forgot to tell you guys this most important fact was a ballot, was a petition that was circulated. This was this people of Michigan went around and we signed this petition and we got it on the ballot. And then we voted it with over 60% approval in the state. So we went around the lawmakers and we got that fucking law.
you know, we're always a target because of that anyway. But um, so it, the good news about that is, is it takes a three or a super majority. So a three quarter vote, not a 50, like a 51% vote for them to get this law in. It's going to take a super majority vote for them to get it in. Right now it's in committee, this ridiculous law. Um, I only told you the little bit about how it reduces the caregiver amount. Now, to keep your five patients, not only do you have to do all those ridiculous things, you also can't do it in a residence anymore. You can't even, you're hold to a higher standard than the uh, commercial market because you can't even have it in a commercially zoned area. It can only be industrial, agricultural, or unzoned. So you are super restricted. And you're going to tell me that 30,000 caregivers, you're not going to lose any caregivers with those super restrictions. It's sickening to me that you're going to tell these caregivers that, hey, starting, and they even have it a dated like March something, something it would go into effect. So starting this date, you go tell these four other sick people, you know, pick between these people you've been helping, you know, X amount of years with this disease and just tell them those guys just can just get fucked. Yeah, just, tell, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Let's, let's do that. Um, and then there's, of course, in this bill, which is pages and pages long that I've got printed out, sitting right next to me that I read all the time. Um, it's got little things hidden in there, little changes and little word changes that just make gigantic differences. For example, right now, anyone 20 or, 21 or older in their own home can grow their own fucking weed and they can make their own edibles. You know, they can make a, a cookies or, or whatever the hell you can you think of, you can make. The only thing that's restricted is you can't do anything like hydrocarbons. You can't do BHO extraction, you know, open blasting. You can't do things like that. But your standard, everything else is, is um, accepted. They struck out all of the language in the law that was written about hydrocarbons because that was the only restriction. They struck it all out and changed it to you can't do any, how do they start, separation of the resin from the plant that involves anything flammable. So oil, butter, <laughs> fucking everything that's used in edibles, fucking alcohol to make RSO that save. I have personally helped people uh, beat cancer with RSO, five fucking people. Some of these people that were sent home and told them that they were going to fucking die. Our own medicine, you know, failed them. And they're going to take that away and they're, and they're calling this bill the the medical uh, the cannabis safety act because that's another stipulation for a caregiver that would want to keep the five patients even though he's got to pay all these extra fees for the transportation and the five hundred dollars a year for the application fee and the um, transportation every time he's got to move the product it's got to be paid for by somebody else to move it um, metric you got to get a computer and the program, and then you have to buy the tags that they're required to use on your plants. You have to buy those and use them, and you can't reuse them. Um, they have RFID tags that tra track, so they're not, you know. And then um, you also, you also, as the, uh, they call it, there's another insulting thing, it's called a specialty medical grower. So, oh, you're special. Um, fuck, I lost my train of thought. There's another restriction that at the end they of the They tried to call you Rain Man or something? Yeah. Yeah. It's just so frustrating. It's so frustrating Excellent because the restriction is so great that we're going to lose a lot of caregivers because they're not, it's not going to be worth the, Oh, testing. You have to pay for testing facility testings, which is often, you know, between 500 to a thousand dollars, depending on what you're getting done. 
So you're also subjected to the facility testings. You know, you're you're restricted to like you know a four percent of what a fucking commercial entity can do as far as volume, but you're expected to pay the same costs. It's just fucking insanity. You know, they're obviously going to want to remove the caregivers so they don't grow at all. And it's not being safe at all. All of these patients are going to lose medicine. Now, people say, oh, well, they can just go to the dispensaries. Oh, really? Um, I, can, I can take you into dispensaries and show you the cost of RSO. And I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody that can afford to pay those fucking prices. But are you going to say die? That's what they told my uncle. That's what they told him. So, I mean, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm saying to all my, you know, representatives that are doing this bill. Now, this bill has went into a committee. It's got to be uh, voted on from the committee. If the committee chooses to or, or passes it, then it goes to the Congress. That's when the representatives make a vote and they got to get that supermajority. So for me, I did contact my local representative and my local representative sent me back a, a email that said, you know, Thank you for reaching out, blah, 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 blah. But basically, this bill is still in committee. I'm not on the committee. I can't vote on it. When it comes out of committee, then, then that's, you know, we can talk. So I'm kind of on hold there. But that doesn't get the committee members off the hook. So that's the target. There's an organization here in Michigan called the Michigan Caregivers Association that's come up. Um, they've been helping us actually for a while, the caregivers. And uh, they're organizing the unique awesome thing actually that uh, they're using here is we've got a lobbyist and actually was on a meeting today a zoom meeting with them and instead of having our lobbyist uh you know do what a lobbyist usually does take money take these guys out to steak dinners and wine and dine them and, and get in their ear no fuck these guys we ain't doing that we're doing better we're just using this money to just uh do these fucking ridiculous it's basically memes on uh, commercials and fucking newspapers. Uh, they had outside the committee meeting, uh, that the first committee meeting, they had Steve <laughs> Linder, the MCMA chairman's, uh, his face on the likeness of uh, Dr. Evil uh, right outside the front door. And he even commented it in his testimony. Um, so, you know, we're embarrassing them and that is working amazingly well. The, uh, Shout out to Medical Mondays. They had uh, Randy Buckman, who was the uh, chairman or president, I don't remember the title, of the MCMA lobby group on there. And he was also uh, the owner of Pleasantries, which is one of the MC, they were donating to the MCMA or whatever you want to fucking call it, paying the MCMA. Uh, I was actually on that episode. I got on there and uh, pretty much just told him, you know, shame on you, Randy. I don't just, you know, I, I just fucking lit him up after they you know gate softball question him the softball i couldn't stand it anymore and i just i just let him have it but uh he stepped out down from the mc he said that the, his company would no longer give money to the mcma and he stepped down as the chairperson or president or whatever the mcma so they got a new person obviously in there but pat on our back the community fucking stepped up and called out some bullshit and the mcma is fucking taking some shots so it's making me happy. I'm encouraged. Now, that being said, at this council meeting, it happened on Tuesday. Um, they didn't decide whether they were going to uh, going to push it to the uh, floor yet or not. So they're going to do another one. It's been delayed. 
So we don't know if it's going to be one week or two weeks from now for the next meeting, but we're just uh, going to keep the word out and show up. The first meeting, so many, it was on a Tuesday, middle of the fucking week during the workday. The whole observation uh, area was filled up with patients and caregiver advocates. They had to open up a whole nother side room called an overflow room. And that was nearly full. I guess you could fit four or five more people in there. Um, the meeting was 100 minutes long. They gave, what was it like? They gave the, pa the, the patients and the advocates 15 fucking minutes at the end. So there's like these big, long, ridiculous presentations by the MCMA and the business groups and this whole song and dance pony show. Um, but in the end, there's some powerful testimony. Man, I was at work because I couldn't be there because it was a harvest. It's the only days that are red circled for me because I can't get off. It's harvest days. But uh, I was literally in tears crying. The last testimony is Susan Fisher. Amazing testimony. And uh, I don't know, man. They, they, they taped it. I'm looking for this feed that they, uh, they supposedly chopped up just like the different people's testimony. Man, when I get that, I'm going to be putting that up and sharing it just to show people like this is this is the people you affect, you know. Absolutely. So it's just important for people to get out there and talk to their reps. It's making the difference, man. It's it's funny. But oh, we're we have a boycott in them, too. So we don't know all of the the members of the uh, MCMA members. Right. We only when we first started looking into this thing we saw their webpage and they were boasting some of these really big names, you know, like, Oh, we're like the Ford and Chrysler and blah, blah, blah. And they were given these names, pleasantries, green peak innovations, not really names that surprised us. Um, uh, what was the other one? Uh, I don't know. We got, I got the list on my Instagram page. It's saved right on my profile page. But anyways, we're just asking people just when you go into your dispensaries, um, look at the boycott list. If you can see it, it's on my page. Um, don't support any of those brands. If they've got all this money that they can donate to these fucking, and this is what I told Randy to his fucking face. I said, if you got all this fucking money that you're donating to a lobby group, instead of being an asshole and fucking patience, take that money and put it in your fucking pocket. Cause that's all you want is the money anyway. And uh, so that's what I'm saying is like our only way to, as a citizen, like the absolute littlest thing we can at least do, if you're going to go buy cannabis Make sure you're not supporting the assholes trying to take away their right for everybody to grow it, you know. That was a story with uh, what was it, MedMen? I think it probably still is the story with MedMen. They were talking about in California and many other states, right? Like they were just one of the, the dominant players in, in cannabis. And, you know, a lot of people would be like, yeah, okay, fine, do that. You know, that's fine. Uh, there's always other choices, but they were actually lobbying to get rid of home grow and patients and medical programs and even small licenses on and on and on and on and on, you know, just uh, ladder pushers. I was, I was uh, telling somebody about that. They were like, oh, they've never heard that expression before. But uh, I was talking about it in the context of uh, immigrants. It's very common for immigrants to come to a country and then basically push the ladder behind them. It's a psychological thing. But for example, uh, businesses will do that, too. And it's natural. You know what I mean? Like they have their capitalistic success or whatever. And they want to screw the competitors. It doesn't have to be that way, though, right? And like uh, that, that, that's something that consumers don't like, for sure. I think most of us can agree. And that's something that a lot of the, the competitors, certainly, at least the small-time people don't like. I don't know. I guess I'm babbling, but uh, I don't know. I certainly oh, prefer the smaller market, man. It's funny you say that because it's exactly what I – I call it uh, pulling up the ladder behind you. I'm like mm – -hmm. that's what I told that, Randy, too. I, I thank God for Medical Mondays. I had the opportunity to jump on the show to be able – for me to say what I would like. You know, I wanted to scream it through the fucking live chat – 
And I was saying some shitty stuff in the live chat. And so they pulled me up because that's a controversial show and they like that kind of stuff. But I told them, I said, look, dude, you sat here and told me this beginning of this interview that you were a caregiver. You're a caregiver grower. You came from the very market that you're shitting on, dude. You're literally pulling the ladder up that you built, that built you and just shitting on everybody else. What the fuck is wrong with you? And he just got quiet. He didn't even have an answer for me. Sometimes shame works. I, w- I wish we would actually enforce, frankly, shame more. You know, they say that you can't shame the shameless, but there are a lot of people who do feel shame, especially when they, you know, are confronted by the, the, the consequences of their behavior. You know, if you actually show like this is negatively impacting the following people or kids or fucking pets, or I don't even know, just make something up, right? I'm not make something up, but I mean, pick something, right? Like uh, we just basically kind of play it polite here in this country. I don't know. We do it a lot. Like, honestly, a lot of the time. And a lot of other countries, they've kind of, uh, they don't do that. You know, they don't play as polite, which is weird, right? Like we think of the UK as this really uptight, polite place, but dude, they're rowdy yeah. as shit. And when they're pissed off about something, they let you know, like right to your face. And so, for example, here, like this is supposed to be one of the cradles of democracy, right? You know, other than, let's say, the ancient Greeks, right? Like we're supposed to be the dudes. So why are we not all up in the business when we're pissed off about something? You know, it's really uh, empowering, man, going to, a, I mean, I went to a capital rally where patients went and advocated said you know they told their story um that's really what my advocate or my advocate my i don't know the word i'm trying to use here i'm getting high maybe my, no my rso is getting me too high no that's my avenue that i'm going next is right now they're uh-huh. only uh the only way i think that uh everyone can help here in in uh, michigan is just uh, if you're a patient or if you're a caregiver or if you're a family member of those people you can easily take, you know, a minute out of your day, 30 seconds out of your day and shoot a video and just talking to the camera and say, this is how, you know, this is why, you know, the caregiver or the patient program is important in Michigan and just make it normal, normalize it. And then, you know, say, you know, right now in <laughs> Lansing, they're considering taking their rights away. At least 80% of what they grow will go away if it's allowed to go through. Contact your local representative and ask them about it. You know, something like that. It'll take a couple minutes out of your day, make a social media post. That's what I'm going to, that's my call to action, I guess. That's what I'm going to be pushing. Maybe uh, if I remember, I'm sure I'll remember on Sunday's show, Michigan Bros Grow Show. That's what I'm going to ask people to do. It's not a lot. The people, the, the, the proportion of people who grow is such a minority. It's, uh, it's, it's always like just stunning to me how few people honestly grow. Like more people should grow and everyone that grows should tell their friends how easy it is and how, how, you know, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world, but it's not a complicated thing. It's as, as difficult as growing tomatoes or anything else. It's realistically for most people. Right. I mean, you know, with a little training, with a little, whatever, with a little bit of knowledge from folks like Spartan and everybody else, uh, potent is very oh. simple to, to accomplish a, 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 at least a decent grow. Right. And, you know, folks could get so much benefit, but most people don't. Right. And so, for example, the states, they're perfectly happy to not deal with that little loose end of, oh, there's like this whole, I don't know why they give a shit, to be honest, but I guess they want the tax revenue and stuff. So they just want to tighten that loose end of like, oh, there's potential revenue that could be had of people walking into dispensaries. No, Um, it's, it's more that the top end guys sitting in the office, never touching a plant, having to justify their job. So to justify your job, you fucking push numbers. And every fucking year, you show how you improve every year. 
And the only way to do that is by shitting on everybody and ignoring that there's any human beings involved in the process. That's just my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're seeing it in California with the price at the retail staying the same and pounds, you know, plummeting for growers. Now those, those two numbers don't add up. <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple. So the funny thing here, this is the, the background information that nobody really wants to speak about, but uh, a lot of the MCMA companies were the first to market here. And they were the first to market here because um, most people couldn't get off the ground because they couldn't get financing from banks. But some of these major money players that could come in there with giant investments can entice these banks to get them that weren't the greatest banks and they get them, got them locked into these <laughs> predatory loans. So now, yeah, they're first to market and they got 50 locations all over the state, but they don't own any of those properties. They're renting them. And this rent goes up every year, upwards of up, an upwards of 30% increase by the end of the thing. Mm -hmm. And the, like, like Steve was just saying, the prices of cannabis are going down, not up, but their rent's going up. So they need some, something, some way to artificially inflate the prices and keep them there. And the only way to do that is eliminate the people that are growing better fucking weed than them for less. That's the real fucking story, but nobody wants to talk about that. It's funny. So I've driven past, so three times in the last month, I've driven past Cookie's facility in Oklahoma City. There's been either no cars or one car in front of it each time. You know, for all the hype and everything else that they push for that facility, I don't see any customers there. I see more customers there at the place I walk past when I walk my dogs than the last three times I've driven by there. I look at them as like a brand, man. I look at that as like, that's just a brand. Is that weed? No. I don't know. I would, look try, like, I would try it if it was like free and somebody handed it to me. I would try it. I'd like to try to be open-minded, but my opinion from the get-go is like, you're going to have to really impress me because I already have a not good opinion of you and I don't have any reason to support you with my money. Absolutely. And then, you know, aside from that though, like there's some really good growers on the smaller scale. If you find a good dispensary that are actually curating their, their buys a little bit better, you're going to find better product at a better price. It's just that simple. I mean, we've made the comparison a million times, but everybody knows it. When you go fucking get a tomato at the store, it tastes like shit compared to the tomato you grew in your backyard with very little effort. And fucking the same thing goes for weed. Because the weed's got to sit in a fucking wait to, wait to get tested before it can move. Then you got to wait for the transport to come pick the fucking thing up. Then you got to fucking wait for it to get packaged at the fucking place. God knows if they're going to do a good job of that. Are they going to package it all or what? Keep it sealed up? Are they going to leave it in that fucking bag, you know, half opened in the back fucking corner until they feel like getting to it? Who fucking knows? Are they going to break it up into a million tiny pieces so they can get the exact amount, maybe pinch off 0.1 of every fucking gram? You know, who knows what the fuck they're going to do? There's so many factors that it's just ridiculous because so many hands are touching and it's getting moved so many times. It's just impossible to be as good as homegrown. Just impossible. So what uh what do you have you guys seen kind of are the trends for 2021 for organic growers or regenerative growers or whatever you want to classify yourselves 
Um, uh, you guys both have a chance to kind of see some different realms than what Fumi and I have, have a chance to be exposed to. What are your guys' thoughts on that? And I apologize for the dog chewing on the bone in the background. I don't think dogs that, don't but, need apologies, man. They're just dogs. They, they do their thing. Man, I was like I, I was probably, saying earlier. I'm super two wolf dogs. Super yeah. lazy. So I, I think the real fucking for me the real revolution is to do less, do less shit. But what I think that um, what I'm seeing everywhere, and and is I don't think it's even a fucking debate, but it's gonna be fungus, man. Fungus is what's fucking popular. It's blowing the fuck up. And it's a good thing. I mean, I'm not bitching about it. Man, I have a forest of mushrooms in my front yard right now. I should do a video or something. It's fucking ridiculous. I could stop anywhere and I'd see at least the little ones. And if I don't see the little ones, I've got fucking big, gigantic. You can see the toadstools from my front window. You don't even have to go outside. They're just like fucking huge. But, um, and, but that's just for me ignoring shit. That's for me leaving the fucking shit on the ground and just letting it do its thing. The fungus. I, haven't seen, I haven't seen one of them yet. I haven't seen the Omidas yet. I've kind of... Right um, Sorry. I, oh, you're all right. This hell, it's your show, Steve. Um, I, you know, I, every I, once in a while, I, I, I find myself getting fed up with the the circle jerk that the cannabis community turns into and um, the pigeonholes that we dive down and the fancy names and labels, whether it's a methodology or a product or, I mean, we've got a, it seems like we've got to marketize everything these days just out of hype. And I find myself becoming a little sickened every once in a while. So I actually have to cleanse my mind for, for lack of a better way to put it and, and get away from all of the people that are sitting in the cannabis echo chamber. Um, so I always, when I get like that, I find myself either, either running into the woods and, and getting lost on trails or finding sources of information that do not include growing cannabis um whether and lately it's been homesteading it's been farming it's it's been like um still regenerative farming but actual like farming not growing cannabis um it's it's crops it's food it's health and wellness and herbalism and all these other facets of of what make me tick and I don't know that it's going to lend any sort of trend to the cannabis community, but I would like to see cannabis growers become more diversified and have more to talk about than just this one plant and, and have more skill sets than just trying to grow one plant. Um, there's plenty of plants we can grow with cannabis. There's plenty of ways to diversify your income with cannabis there's like i was asking wendy about mob grazing ruminants like that's that's a totally feasible way to handle your cannabis field cover crops but as even as she said she's hasn't done it nobody's really doing it um we are 
in the same way that you can't take OHN out of KNF and say, I'm a KNF gardener and I use OHN and expect it to have KNF type responses and outputs. I don't think you can take cannabis growing and cherry pick it out of agriculture and say, I have a healthy farm. I think we need to diversify a little bit more. I think we need to include other income sources, other crops, other management techniques, other communities. We need to not isolate ourselves from these other people that are also doing great things and living healthy lifestyles and repairing the land and sequestering carbon and all these other issues that are fundamental to us being alive on this planet in a couple hundred years. Um, so I, I, I hope that we start to diversify a little bit more. There's nothing wrong with cannabis and there's nothing wrong with cannabis helping people, but there's more to life than that. And if all we ever are is cannabis growers, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, we're actually like staking our foot down to the ground and walking in circles. Like, we need to be about more than just cannabis and we need to talk to more people than just ourselves. And it's, it's always refreshing to me after I spend about 10 days listening to people that have nothing to do with cannabis, never smoked a bowl in their life and they're farmed their whole life. Dairy farmers, um, livestock herders, like these are wonderful people that have a lot of input and have a, a totally different perspective on the natural world and to pigeonhole ourselves into just cannabis and think that cannabis is this panacea for the world. Like we're kind of sitting on the pedestal at that point. And there's so much more to life. That's just blowing us by. Cause we think cannabis is this end all be all when really it's, it's the gateway drug to farming. It's the gateway drug to, to a healthier lifestyle. It's the gateway to, to discovering all this other part of life that's beautiful. But if all you do is open the gate, take a step and say, oh, look, a cannabis plant, and you never actually get into the field, you've missed the point. Like, So I, I hope that we diversify both in community and in knowledge. And I hope that we can start to extend ourselves into these other aspects of agriculture and life and health and wellness and actually do more good for people that aren't already chronically ill. Um, like it, it's, it's beautiful to save somebody who's on death's doorstep, but what about the people that are marching that way, but aren't there yet? can we turn them around like before they even get there? Sure we can, but we have to want to. So I hope that as a community, not as an industry, because there's, those are two very separate things, but I hope the community in us can start to branch out and work with these other communities because to hell with the industry. I mean, the industry is going to be this monster of a thing that the ball's already rolling and it's kind of screwed. Um, but the community in us, where the grassroots we started from, like, we can't just give up on that. We can't just say, well, we're happy now and be content because we're going to get mowed over and we're going to lose out on all of this other life to live. And I hope that we start to incorporate 
people that aren't cannabis into what we're trying to do and and kind of stitch ourselves into a, a greater world than just the echo chamber we've lived in i kind of going in circles but it but i think that don't i think i'm sure you agree but i think growing the cannabis plant there's something with something with growing the cannabis plant specifically at least for me that really sunk in the love for growing and specifically organically i don't know but um and so that branched for me so like right now here's actually a great example in my in my backyard right now i have a cannabis plant planted in the ground right next to an herb garden it's got a beautiful sage it's got rosemary it's got all these fucking pollinating plants and that plant is doing fucking great man um and because I have that plant where it is, I've been nurturing those the, that herb garden for like five fucking years before I even put that canvas plant there. But when I started that fucking herb garden, I had that fucking idea in my head that one day I want to put my fucking cannabis plant right here because it's going to have all these fucking, I always see those little fucking uh, uh, wasps, those little predator wasps flying around the uh, echinacea. And so it's like, man, I'm fucking playing here. And man it's been the shittiest rainiest fucking season it's like ridiculous i got like i said the mushroom forest because all the fucking rain and my plants just out there happy as shit so I, I don't know man but you know it's it all it all ties together man i love how like you know my love for cannabis now i can grow this other shit and i can grow this other shit and oh perennials i only got to plant it one time and it comes back again and again and again oh where should i put that you know what i mean i got well, I I think part of that too, shit. People, it's fucking amazing. a lot of people don't realize that fungi, when you have a good fungal base, it will kill actively the bad fungi. So, the, and you actually see this, anyone that's grown large scale fungi has seen this you know, firsthand. But if you ever, so um, you could actually use this to your benefit as well on the back end. So if you're a, a cult, sorry about the dog choking on bones in the back. Um, <laughs> Follow up really from earlier. Um, uh, anyway, so if you're growing a, a mushroom, uh, say I have, in theory, a bed of mushrooms, XYZ species that I'm growing, and I've already flushed it two or three times, it's starting to reduce the, the flush size, I can actually inoculate, I can take some um, oyster mushroom inoculant and sprinkle just a couple of, just a couple of sprinkles of, of spots here and there, just so I have a invading um, mycorrhizae that is non-pathogenic, but it's foreign, foreign enough to make it freak out. Now my mycorrhizal bed will produce very large uh, and, and heavy flushes all of a sudden to try and get rid of the invader because it wants to dump its spores on top of it to eradicate it because the spores actually will kill the, the invading fung uh, mycorrhizal spores. So you can actually use that to your advantage if you're cultivating mushrooms in that manner. Or in uh, the way it works in the garden is if you have a heavy mycorrhizal base, it's actively killing off anything that comes in the garden. <laughs> so it works both ways. Dude, I, those little fugal, fugal bed things that I made for my raised beds, um, even my brass, like in my brassica beds, I'm getting fungal blooms just fucking blowing up in there. It's got to be from all. And I, it wasn't just when I made these fugal beds, I, I didn't use just um, cannabis stock that was the main input down there but i also grabbed all of my sticks from like probably three years big giant like i could see like 
the mycelium and I could see mushroom growth all over these fucking things. So I threw all those, like all my sticks from like three years worth of collecting them all into those pits too. When I built up those raised beds. So I'm sure that's helping too. That's probably where a lot of it comes from, but uh, I, I barely water them, man. It's fucking amazing. Yeah, uh, one thing to add to that, if you're growing multiple different species of mycorrhizae uh, in a jarred form uh, for whatever purpose, um, you can, uh, uh, or um, mycelium, I'm sorry, uh, you can absolutely just use those different species in the same manner. I've been using the mushroom blocks, whatever you want to call them, the spent mushroom blocks from just using for CO2 because whatever, it's it's fairly cheap for what I get out of it. I'm not trying to get super high levels. But I take those mycelium blocks and I bust them up and throw them in my compost piles. Um, they're blue oyster mushrooms. So, I'm not, you know, and uh, yeah, they, that's going to be building up more, more. Well, Stamets uh, keeps saying that oyster mushrooms are like literally the best thing ever. Like he was talking about how they're the best thing to even digest like asteroids. Really? Like, look it up, like literally asteroids. So they're going to be good Shit. enough for your compost. Yeah. Now they found um, strains of uh, oysters that will break down um, them. And the other thing, um, mealworms were the other thing that breaks down plastics, a lot of plastics. Um, so definitely something that's funky that's out there. Uh, King Strafaria were the other one I was trying to remember for busting up, especially solid soils uh, that, you know, you need to really get in there. Uh, you put that in some beets and some, some radishes and some turnips and stuff like that. And you really bust that soil up. If you have yeah, a worm, they, they love that shit too. Wormbin loves those little spent blocks, man. The uh, Spartan I was gonna mention earlier, the they have daikon radishes that they call tillage radishes, and they grow. I mean, they grow. Yeah, I've had three of them last year. I grew them in this fucking. There's an old oak, not oak. There's an old willow tree right on the border of my yard and my neighbor's yard, and so there's a fence that goes between there. But it's just like this. The fucking tree they cut down, but it doesn't matter. It's just if, if I didn't grow my grass, I'd get willow shoots all over the time because it's still fucking living tree. So it's like so gnarly. I was like, fuck this. And I started piling up a bunch of leaves and just making a big compost pile there. Um, and then I throw squash in there that does fucking amazing. But um, I grew dicam the first year, uh, three big ones uh, to try to like get some kind of a root. Uh, to break up the soil there because it's just like with all the roots that are in there it's just and i didn't be, i wasn't even, i didn't even harvest any of them i didn't even try to i just wanted them to rot and then but yeah they got pretty fucking tall probably about five foot tall the shoots from the top yeah as, as if you keep leaving them in the soil and letting them die eventually you can turn your clay soil into something that a an, a field farmer would be jealous of <laughs> You can add so much organic matter that you actually outweigh the clay in the soil and you'll end up with a beautiful loam that you can't buy. You, you, you can't pay for that kind of a soil. I'll take some more daikon seeds. They're cheap as hell. I'll just fucking sprinkle them all over. That's what I was mentioning earlier when I was talking to Wendy about, about altering native soil is, is if you, if you know the little tricks, you can alter your soil to get it to where you want it to be um and it, it's it's better than anything you can buy you know and and now you have especially if you own the property you have soil that's if properly maintained 
good for generations to to supply yourself food and nourishment um whether that's for your endocannabinoid system or your gut you know either way yeah, you can pull a couple of those dye can make some kimchi get on that for Speaking me of which uh i wanted to quickly throw up but we also have um uh, expert Quan Khan Fem from Vietnam is he does a lot of work with long-term ferments and KNF along with liquid IMO ferments um, uh, and has a lot of data on how, what's the parts per million of various nutrients when you ferment different things over X period of time so doing a test at one month two months three months that type of stuff to, to find out where that that point is where it makes sense to, to stop and, and start utilizing it or where there's a big difference or maybe it drops off. He's doing a lot of that data collection. So he's going to be one of our speakers, uh, uh, the second, uh, actually the very end of the first day of the conference, definitely check that out. But a super cool guy. He did a talk a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, episode 251. It was super informative. That was a pretty cool episode. He had that little, uh, the app he was using too was pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, to organize all the SOPs and stuff, it made a lot of sense. Oh, I'm gonna right. have to jump off, guys. It's getting pretty late for me. Oh, I gotta I work gonna... in the morning, but uh, thanks cool. for having me on, man. This was fun, it was awesome. Awesome you... talking with you, Cascadian man. It's like talking to myself, bro. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's always fun to talk to you, man. <laughs> Why don't you tell everybody all the different shows because you're on, yeah, well, I'm on three repeating on ones, yeah. So yeah, cheap. So it's cheap home grow channel, but the show is called Growing with My Fellow Growers. These are all on YouTube. Um, the Michigan Bros Grow Show. That's my fucking home base right there. And then the um, uh, the GML show. So those are the three YouTube shows. GML is on Friday at 9 p.m. usually, um, and then the other two are on Sundays. One starts at seven, and the other starts at nine. You can find me there. Thanks for letting me. Uh, Awesome. Shoot the shit with you guys, man. It's fucking awesome. Thanks for coming. Fumador is fucking awesome to talk to you. Fucking always Steve and always like cascading. Everybody in chat, sorry I ignored you, but I was fucking having such a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. Fuck yeah, the MCMA. They can fuck off. How about you, Cascading? Blow out here too, yeah. How can people find hey, I gotta- you? cascading grown on instagram man if you're looking for me um anybody and i'll just shamelessly plug myself here anybody in the u.s looking for a seed separator i got a couple left that are available they're up for sale uh you'll see the ad on my my instagram if that's something that interests you um also there's another ad on my instagram for i don't know if you can see behind me here but i got all these buckets some buckets there a bunch over here and we've got a limited number of um they're they're vegetable and herb seeds so um you know I, I practice what i preach we've got bundles of uh i think they're 51 packets in the bundle it's 50 percent off if you bought the packets individually there's a limited number of those bundles left but um yeah we're just trying to get seeds out to to people to grow their own food and try to get people to to be more engaged with more than just just cannabis so you can find the ad there on my my instagram as well to get you some veggies and herb seeds and they're non-gmo you know most of them are heirloom open pollinated so 
put a lot of hard work into trying to find the right varieties to offer to people. But yeah, it's, it's all through Cascading Grown on Instagram. It'll show you the other Instagram profiles for whatever you're looking for. But if you're looking for me, that's where I'm at, man. Thanks for having me on. Fumi, it's nice to see you again, man. I haven't been onto the chronic table lately. I had a little medical mishap, but I'm I'm recovering now, so I'll probably be around a little bit more. But um, I'm glad to hear you better, man. Nice to see you. Thanks, Steve, for the invite. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. And I will uh, catch you guys around soon. Cheers, bud. Take it easy. And uh, what about you, Fumi? How can what's new with you? And then. Uh... Uh... How people can find you? Gardening. What else? Photography. Other things. I don't know. Uh, photo contests. That's a good one. Uh, come join the Fumi's photo contest. It's like growing every month, like uh, better and better photos and videos and stuff are getting posted. So that's kind of fun. Uh, follow Portland Cannabis Tasting Society. Uh, that's one of my accounts. And uh, go post a new photo. That can be anybody, basically anybody that grows or bakes or makes their own thing. Uh, it doesn't even necessarily have to be cannabis. You know, most people honestly do, but uh, it could be a cupcake for all I care. You know, the, it's people's choice to vote on it. And uh, we like to have fun with the photos and stuff. And uh, uh, Portland Cannabis Tasting Society was the the original like meeting like group that I had before COVID and stuff. And then that just morphed into my show, which I guess I'll now say is Chronic Table. So we don't meet in person, but we meet virtually and we goof off. And <clears throat> I don't know. The photo contest is just somehow my... Uh, placeholder for the old tasting society i don't know we used to have like flavors of the night and so like someone would win like you know prizes glass and stuff for literally just having like people's favorite flavor so now instead of favorite flavor we have favorite photo but yeah new grows has always got wonderful photos he's not actually a noob that's kind of false advertising it's like tiny when you when you meet like a if you, if you ever hear about somebody named Tiny, he's probably not Tiny. He's probably super big and buff. So basically, it's, it's ironic, you know? The name is ironic, I think they would say. Unexpected, perhaps. Potent is showing off the fine uh, uh, photos. A lot of them are noobs. Honestly, they're wonderful photos. These are now noobs memes, frankly. There we go. No, we we've actually shown some of these memes on my show. They're very good. I like it's fun to be made fun of. But we had someone make we've had a quite a few good memes people have sent us over the years for the show and we always enjoy it. Cuterino. That's a good one. That was a good one. El Cuterino. <laughs> Coot is a lot of people's spirit animal and, and noob remembers Hank Reno saying that Coot was his spirit animal. He has a certain honest gruffness, right? Oh, yeah. But on that note, oh, that was, uh, oh, I don't even remember that one. I remember laughing my ass off with that one, but I don't remember what the context was. <laughs> Bathing in the ice waters. I can't quite remember. <laughs> that, was pretty, that was pretty good. Uh, for that and more inspiration, come join us on <laughs> Humidor and the Flavors. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> Some good ones for sure. For uh, what do I like to say? Uh, we take the weeds seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. So for that kind of stuff, come join us. We have a, a I like to say a, a fun, a, like a friendly pub atmosphere. You know, like years and years and years ago, I was saying this the other day, like uh, I used to uh, study, I studied in Vienna for a little bit 
and uh, they had like these cafes there that you could go read a newspaper, have a coffee, chill out, talk to people. It's just the nicest freaking thing. But that's pretty old fashioned, pretty old school, right? It doesn't really work with weed. So I was just like, man, it'd be fun to have like an online pub. So basically, we just have this kind of thing where people roll in, roll out, potent stops by, coot stops by. You know, a lot of folks kind of stop by, let people uh, hang in the chat, and we have a good time and talk about actually interesting things, you know? So it's a fun place. Come join us. If you want to learn the flavors. Oh, and also, if you'd like to buy some seats, uh, that there is that little matter of uh, uh, perhaps you'd like some organa or something else. Come join me uh, uh, with the uh, the seed thing, genetic preservation thing, I guess, over at uh, fumidoro.com. I should say that. All right. And uh, don't forget, everybody, you can check the class out over at apmjclass.com. Uh, Marty and I have been adding quite a bit of new content to that lately. Um, we also have the virtual aquaponic cannabis conference, uh, March 13th and 14th from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Um, a huge list of speakers uh, from Canada, South Africa, Switzerland, Sweden, uh, Vietnam, um, Colombia, Australia, uh, as well as a home grow panel, a craft grown panel, and a commercial grown panel with some awesome surprise panelists. I think you guys are going to like, in fact, I know you guys are going to like, um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, we're going to have a good time educating you guys on a whole bunch of cool topics. So looking forward to it. Um, we will see you guys again. Also check out the pre uh, earlier this week, we did another episode with Brendan Rust, uh, super informative could stop by for the second half of it. So definitely check that out. Uh, and, um, thank you, Wendy for coming on the show tonight. Uh, shout out to Marty at AP Meds. Uh, actually, let me throw that up here real quick before we totally take off. Um, you can check out our class that Marty and I have put together if you're looking for more long-form education at apmjclass.com. Uh, we're constantly adding new content. We have two live sessions a month uh, or more, depending on what we're doing. Um, and uh, teach you guys how to grow stuff that looks like this with stuff that looks like this. I know it sounds crazy. Um, <laughs> I teach you how to not get this. These aliens taught him. And uh, yeah, it's a good, a good long form course uh, and growing every single month. Tons of new content. And uh, I think you guys will like it if you're looking to learn more about commercial side of, of production. All right. Thanks everybody for watching. Check me out at Potent Ponics, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, uh, all the things. Um, and uh, 